and welcome to another episode of Over Drinkers. I am Mike Burge, the voice inside your head, as always on this really annoying podcast that you listen to. And uh, today uh, we're doing another super special, awesome, totally cool Over Drinkers special edition where we're not going to be talking about just one movie with one other person. We're going to be talking about not two movies with two other people. But we're going to be talking about four movies with three other people besides me. And this is part two of Strong Women in Film. Yay! Yay! (laughs) Very serious Uh, for a brief moment. This is where the line gets drawn, guys. Um, So so last time uh, we did um, The Fifth Element, uh, the Kill Bill series, and Terminator... The first, the first, first one, right. And Terminator. 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 The Terminator. The Terminator. And we pick characters that were just very strong. Uh, this time, we are going to pick uh, four um, lady directors. So each one of us picked a director that we wanted to use, and we each picked one movie from that director's filmography. And we're going to talk about them. But before we start doing that, Let's go around the table real quick and see who's here. I'm Mike Bird. You know who I am already, so we'll just move on. Um, why don't we start with Liz? Um, I'm Liz. Uh, I'm a writer. I do some music stuff for work. I bartend and serve tables. Um, living in a very small town. Feels like a movie every day. <laughs> Walking down the street yesterday with a couple of friends and the wind's blowing through our hair and we just got out of a wine tasting. And it, it was, was just, us. Yeah, it was uh-huh. us. That was you and I. And I said it was like yeah. we live in a movie yeah. every day. Every day. It feels like we're in a less white version of Stars Hollow in New York. <laughs> That's so funny because Heath said that Cornwall, to him, is Stars Hollow. Like, we're living in Stars Hollow. Mm. Sure. Aren't we all? And yeah, you also, you've been writing for Story Screen for some time. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. And uh, we also have returning. It's me. It's Stamper. I've been here twice before. We talked about the notebook and then (sighs) our ladies, our strong ladies edition. Um, So I work at the museum in Beacon, Dia. And I also work at Quinn's as a bartender and a server. On my off time, I like to go hiking and I like to photograph nature. Cool. And watch movies. Oh, that's so cool. Movies. Oh, that's really yeah. cool. Yeah, I actually totally like that. That's really awesome. <laughs> yeah. Hiking is kind of like easy. And <laughs> there's just like getting there and then you got to get back and I'm just kind of like, eh. I know. <clears throat> that's so great. That's and then great. we also have returning champ. Oh, Bernadette Gorman here. Um, if you listen to the podcast on Story Screen, I'm sure you've heard me. I've done, I think, almost all of the different varieties of podcasts, I think. I think you've been on all of them now. Yeah. Um, and I'm going to be starting one soon about television. So oh, keep yeah. your e- ears Cathode open. Cathode Raycast. Cathode Raycast. <laughs> mm-hmm. Your eyes peeled, your ears open. Your ears open. Um, I also write for the site, managing editor, and I went to school for film, film studies. I'm using it using this. Right. <laughs> I'm not getting paid or anything to do it. I just moved to New York about a year and a half ago. Mm-hmm. Worked in Beacon for a while and just recently got a house. So Ooh, congratulations. Un- unemployed and engaged. What? <laughs> yeah, there you 
go. Um, people say I'm fun employed, but I think I'm unemployed. It's <laughs> yeah. not as fun anymore when your money is running out. Oh, no. So I will be looking for work. But for now, I love talking about movies. Mm-hmm. I love talking about television and writing about it. So. I love that you brought up uh, that you got a new house as opposed to getting engaged. <laughs> you said that one first. That was like, I was I, like hey, that's perfect. I was like, that's you great. can't leave out the engagement part. <laughs> the engagement thing happened a year ago. It happened a yeah. long time ago. The house ago, thing yeah. happened. Yeah, very yeah, true, like, very true. No, yeah, that's recent. Right. That's why I moved out of the movie town of Beacon. And oh, I'm now town. in Cornwall. Everybody, everybody's got to move out. It makes speaking that much more special when you just don't have to deal with it every fucking day. Yeah, yeah that's true. That's Aww. true. Oh, I was no, I miss I'm it. It makes it that it much right more there. special when I go back. Now yeah. I'm just like, oh, wow, well, yeah. I don't all right. have to deal with it. I that's what was going it. on inside my head. Yeah, yeah this yeah, place yeah. is sweet. Aww. I feel that way about New Paltz, too. I was just there yesterday for the first time in months, and it's like a very special place to me because that's where I went to school yeah. and studied film and learned how to speak to people. So mm-hmm. I had my first acid trip in New Paltz. Oh, of course. So I go back I'm like oh yeah I remember I vaguely right. remember this growing yeah. into who I am it's mentally cool <laughs> yes and uh, today on Overdrinkers we are uh, partaking of of course Bloody Mary's yes cheers cheers to everyone here Huzzah. we go he was making no, Tito's vodka mm. Ooh, wait are we are that we is delicious uh, I mean if they want to give us money they can Uh, So yeah, we're just going to dive into it. Um, We've got four movies today. Uh, What we're going to be doing is we're going to be covering them. Pretty much what we did was we ended up, uh, almost by accident, uh, getting uh, four different genre entries in this. We've got a comedy, we've got an action, we've got a horror, and we've got a, uh, a drama. You know, the drama's also a little bit of a period piece, and also the comedy, as all of the best comedies are, has a little bit of drama thrown into it. Um, so we're going to be doing, um, Diary of a Teenage Girl. We're going to be doing Point Break. We're going to be doing Marie Antoinette. And we're going to be doing The Babadook. The Babadook. The Babadook. Um, so we're going to be doing that. And so let's, let's, let's jump into it. Uh, Liz, you start off. What was your movie? So I, uh, selected Diary of a Teenage Girl. Um, it's directed and written by Marielle Heller. Um, Adapted from a graphic novel by, I think it's Phoebe Glopner. Yeah. That sounds um, right. 2015 it was released and it's, I, it's this really dark comedy and it just, uh, it, it gets me. Stamper was saying before that she was watching it and that she was like, of course Liz picked this movie. Of course you did. <laughs> of course you did. <laughs> And it's, uh, what's, uh, what's Diary of a Teenage Girl about? So it's, a uh, More or less. More or less, it's a coming-of-age story, a sexual awakening story of a 15-year-old girl who, you know, is, like, very comfortable exploring her sexuality and chooses to do so with a very irresponsible adult male who's also fucking her mother. So, uh, it's pretty intense. Holy shit, put that on the back of the DVD. That's, like, perfect. <laughs> That's really, really good. It's almost all that needs to be said. And that's, uh, <laughs> Let's who's that, into it. who's that, um, that hot piece of brain that plays the guy? Oh, uh, it's a Skarsgård. Alexander Skarsgård. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I never watched True Blood, so I'm not that's on this train. Only yeah. the first, like, maybe three seasons. Oh, is that a sham? He's only in, like, oh wait, no, spoiler alert for True Blood. that's what you should only watch, maybe. Oh, I <laughs> see. But then they jump the shark and they never come back I down. See. Yeah, no, I never watched it because it just didn't, I don't know. It didn't work for the fawns. It can't work for anybody 
Um, yeah, so right. why, why, uh, what made you, Liz, what made you pick uh, Diary of a Teenage, the Diary of a Teenage Girl? What made you pick that? It's just so powerful. It's visceral. It's like, it's very raw and honest and real. And it depicts her sexuality in a way that's, it's not objectifying her. It's very much about her choosing to do things. But at the same time, you know, she's a child. And Belle Powley, who plays her, just does such an incredible job of portraying what it actually is to be 15 and, like, not sure of what you're doing but wanting to do it because you have fucking hormones when you're 15. I have never masturbated more than when I was 15. Like Me too. <laughs> it was, it's just the way it is, but they don't... People, society does not portray that openly. And this no. is one of the first times I've ever seen it done this well. Huge double standard when it comes to the coming-of-age tale sexually mm-hmm. with that, which is why like we, we screened this back in... I can't remember exactly what month. It was last summer. Last summer, I think like August or something like August, that. We yeah. screened it because I saw it and it was phenomenal to me like how they were able to treat her sexuality with uh realism but also respect Mm -hmm. it was really crazy that they were able to take this thing that should be totally taboo uh i mean this guy's like what in his 30s and she's 15 years old and it's there and we understand it in every scene but they're able to kind of make it about her and this is her story Mm -hmm. and she's choosing to do this whether or not it's right or wrong on his side or even on her side, it's something that she's dealing with, and we're constantly thinking: oh, Is she going to get any comeuppance? Is there going to be any anything that she has to pay for this? And I actually kind of like that. In the grand scheme of things, no. In the scheme of like it being illegal and it being all of these different like th- th- being taboo in general, I really like how it treats her character's sexuality despite her age. Mm-hmm. And despite her gender, with respect and dignity, and it's like, this is what she's going through. That was something that I really appreciated about the film, too, which is, like, eventually her mother finds out about this betrayal, and there's this fallout, but in the end, they're reunited, and they are together. And it's also, I love portrayals of, you know, young women and their mother and their relationships, especially when those relationships are in, like, sexual competition. Because my mother was very young when she had me, and she said fucked up things to me, like, oh, he's only nice to you because he has a crush on me. About a 12-year-old boy. Like, Mm. so whenever I can see that, it just, it's validating. It's real. Mm -hmm. And it gives me hope that one day my mother and I will have a good relationship. (laughs) I think that's the hope of a lot of people. I hope one day I have a great relationship with your mom. Like, yeah. we, we can go. No, 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 not like that. Like she, she okay. seems like a good shopper. Like we'll, we'll go on out there. We can trade the, books. Uh, the other thing is like I love that they portrayed uh, the psychologist, you know, her father, as a fucking asshole. Because in my experience, people who get into that line of work are either actually very caring and committed people that are fucked up and have their shit. Or they're master manipulators, yeah. mm-hmm. and they want to destroy you and have power over you. Yeah, I took a lot of psychology courses uh, in college, <laughs> and while I was psychology and sociology, because I was just like, I want to understand these weird things that I have to talk to every day. People, 
Yeah, uh, <laughs> I got these that. movies. And uh, the more and more I, I did it, I think I dropped out of a subclass in psychology because it was just like, this is too much because it starts really getting into, you know, even, even in 101, it's very manipulative. It's very, you need to be able to try and ride around something to be able to get to what you want. And that's mm-hmm. how you can talk to somebody. That's how you can cure them. That's conversation. But it got to this point where I was like, oh my God, this is actually kind of... The idea that Dark. you have the power to cure anybody is fucked up. To right, absolutely. Okay. And I really do love, too, in Diary, how how they treat uh, those two big male figures, the uh, the Alexander Skarsgård's character and the dad. Christopher Maloney, Pascal. I think. Yeah, and right? they're, yeah, exa- yeah, and they're both actually well. very childish, but if not more are, childish than her. But just like the stepfather. So do they ever, like, go into... Yeah, you're right, you're right. He was right. a stepfather. Mm-hmm. Stepfather who was around for a long he was time. Her so the biological father is just like... father. Mm-hmm. So her half-sister's father. So her mm-hmm. stepfather. Mm-hmm. Gretel? And the way... Yeah. yeah. The way that he... The way that he demonizes her touch is just fucking disgusting. Oh, Absolutely. And like, the way he makes the mom feel yeah, like right. she's too physically dependent on you. You sexual. have to stop. No, it's, it's sexual. Yeah. yeah. But that could be true. I mean, that might be validated. Her yeah. enthusiasm in regards to sex at that age is a bit bizarre. It's a little unfounded, I mean, it, typically. It's not necessarily bizarre. It's natural. You're in your formative years. You're figuring things out. What feels good? What doesn't feel good? But at the same time... It might be Alexander Skarsgård's uh, character coming into play and kind of igniting those feelings that bring it into fruition. Because mm-hmm. when she has that relationship with that high school boy and he's intimidated by her zest, yes. by her zeal. Well, it's because boys are afraid of women. They're all, <laughs> all tart. I'll talk. But she... Yeah. That's Heart because she bite. came into it knowing more than he did. And mm-hmm. that made him feel uncomfortable. But she yes. was well beyond what he was capable of. Maybe even well beyond what uh, Monroe, Alexander Skargar's character, was ready for in terms of her age True. and that attraction between the two. It was, I don't know, I, I almost felt uncomfortable watching this movie because of how raw it was. No, it is And because and of I, how real it was. That's amazing, yeah. though, that it, it takes you, not to, not to interrupt you, sorry, like that it takes you to that uncomfortable place mm-hmm. and allows you to go like, they're like, this is okay. You can be here. It's all right. And you're like, oh, I don't know about this. Like, no, no, it's okay. We got you. Like, watch this. Learn from it. Check it out. See how this makes you feel. Because at the end of the day, one of the things I kept turning to myself in the first time I saw this movie was Alexander Skarsgård is a really good actor. He is a thespian. He is like, he is doing this. And the actress that uh, portrays the Bell protagonist. Pally. What's her name? Belle Pally. Pauly, is that how you pronounce Pally? it? I don't know. I want to say Bell, but I'm not gonna like. I'm not gonna call like Al Pacino Al. You know, I'm not gonna do that. Um, it, it, she's actually like you know 23 at the time when they made this film, and so it's like he is acting with another actress, and they are pre- they are presenting this story in front of you. And on the stage, this would be very easy to do because everything's it's far simulated. away, and it's yeah, exactly. There's like an almost kind of. Uh, you can't make uh, it look as real. Exactly. It's, there's a surreality to it, uh, if that's a word, which I don't think it is, but I love Sur- making up words. Surreal. A surrealism, a surreality. Surreal. Surreal. Um, I'm sure it's, that's real. It's actually a, a French Reality word. has been Oh, really? Yeah. Ah, that makes yes. me uh, kind of uh, worldly. <laughs> uh, no, and it's just Your like culture. when you're in a movie, like it's very up close and it's very it's very personal and close. And like those uh, those scenes between them, between them, those sex scenes between them are very intimate. 
and very like they get you in the feeling of what it felt like to first be to to, to be exploring your sexuality when you're young and to do it from the point of view of a woman is completely different for me. And I've seen lots it's, of movies. Yeah. There are not yeah. movies that do this. There's no. tons that do it with boys. I mean, that's yeah. what taught me how to, how to talk to women when I was like 12 years old. I was like, all right, let's how watch Ferris doing? Bueller's Day Off. See, it almost fire. We got this. <laughs> a little bit of Judd Nelson, Bender in there. That's it. Yeah, Liz, uh, I'm so glad you chose this movie because I don't think I had seen anything that truly represented what it feels like to be a teenage girl. There's nothing like it. It's no. like the first time I've ever seen an experience as honest of teenage girlhood. It's just mm-hmm. like because you're you're being forced to perform as a woman but being treated like a child and you're trying to become an adult, right? And part of becoming an adult and moving from girlhood to adulthood is becoming even more hypersexualized than girls already are. And to see it being dealt with, honestly, it's not like girls are some innocent flowers or anything like that. It's we have a sexuality and we have desires and we're taught to hide them. And that's why it's not portrayed this honestly, because Mm -hmm. men don't want to know how sexual women actually are. They don't, because it would terrify them. Right, and it takes away the bravado from them. Yeah, like, oh, she doesn't want it. I'm going to make her want it. But no, she wants it, (laughs) and she's letting you think that she doesn't, so that she doesn't hurt your fragile ego. Because of the performance (laughs) aspect of it, for sure. You're not wrong. (laughs) Well, that's what I like about it as an aside, you know, because we have this uh, voiceover of the diary, the the uh, mm-hmm. audio diary where she says, does anyone else think about sex this much? Yeah. Or am I the mm-hmm. only one? Yeah. And when you are 15, you don't necessarily feel that you can maybe reach out to other people. Fortunately, she has her friend Kimmy, but maybe unfortunately she has her friend Kimmy. Yeah. But then, you know, having that conversation about what you're feeling and acting on it is very important. It's pivotal for your uh, development and who you are and understanding that this is totally normal. But maybe not. I mean, her scenario was abnormal. Yeah, we're just saying anything about it. I don't know. I almost had an affair with my English teacher when I was in high school. <laughs> we're going deep right now. No, no, Nothing yeah. physical ever happened, but we would have lunch together every day. He would tell me I was beautiful and that he liked my poetry. And we'd sit alone in his darkened classroom and talk about ourselves and our lives. And it was a very emotionally intense relationship. So, like... To say it's abnormal, I don't, I mean, I don't feel like it's true because I've had a somewhat similar experience, minus all the sex. And he was twice my age, and he had no business having lunch with a 16-year-old girl who was his student. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. none whatsoever. I heard, and I don't know how true this is, but I, I heard it from a friend a long time ago, and she said that in in her understanding of, like, talking to her friends... And her growing up and just learning different stories from different people that most women's first uh, promiscuous relationship where it's like, this is a little naughty. This should not be happening. This should be kept a secret. Most first interactions with that are emotional Mm -hmm. and not sexual. Mm -hmm. Most of them are kind of like a game almost Mm -hmm. where it's like. I know that I'm not supposed to be doing this, but as long exactly. as we don't do anything that if we got caught doing it, we would be in trouble. Mm-hmm. And normally this does usually end up, which is horrible. Usually that is with uh, older men is the first thing is because 
there's uh, there's just I mean I can't speak to why that is obviously I, I can understand t- story and tone and theme and ooh, like I can get that <laughs> but as far as like real people and real situations I can never fully understand that but I get the idea of being emotionally or intellectually attracted to somebody of a of an older age and when you're young you're trying to learn and information and education can be one of the most attractive things mm-hmm. in somebody experience even age. and so that can be it something that can draw experience. draw someone in who's in a sensitive mm-hmm. age between you know when you're 15 or even younger like you're you're ready like you want to know things mm-hmm. and some people can take advantage of that in very weird odd ways or some people can kind of help that flower bloom mm-hmm. a little bit so another thing that i really liked about it um you said the voiceover. Whenever the voiceover is happening, there's all these illustrations happening, and that's mm-hmm. one of my favorite parts of the film. Me too. Where, you know, her drawings are following her around, mm-hmm. and I love that on top of it being like a sexual awakening story, it's also just an actualization. Like, she's actualizing what she wants in her life, and she becomes an artist. Like, at the end of the day, she became an artist, and didn't allow any of this bullshit to drag her down the way society would expect it to. Right. Um, you know, I mean, when you get pimped out by your girlfriend, it's like, it's hard to come back from that, but she doesn't even fucking bat an eye, and that's why she's so amazing. <laughs> she's, 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 she's fucking badass. Yeah, she's really good. To go off of that, I really love the animation aspect. Um, for a while there, I got really ingrained into, like, seeing the Terry Zwigoff movie Crumb, Mm-hmm. I was watching American Splendor, which is about Harvey Pekar. Um, Ghost World was a big movie for me, so learning about that world. And I love that she's in touch with Eileen Kaminsky Crumb, um, Crumb's wife, in touch with her, and she's encouraging her. And she's like, pursue your dreams, become an artist, draw every day. Thank you so much for reaching yeah, out to me a, because you're a, a really girl, and I don't get a lot of fan this. mail yeah. from from young girls. And I she encourages like her to pursue it, Sorry. and that was. Awesome. That really spoke to me because those specific artists are so raw. They draw humans in such a raw, gross way that is very true to life. And I love that that's what she takes from it. And she's like, I love this art. I want to make this type of art that's real. The drawings she makes of herself, she has big thighs. She accentuates features about herself that she sees. But a lot of other people would probably want to kind of hide. Mm-hmm like prettify themselves in cartoons but she does not she, she just draws herself even the way more she wants so like to draw. I, I thought she she, awesome. she over draws them yeah like, as if like there are these things about her that she thinks are a defining feature when it's right. like i never even considered that when i was watching you in this in this movie as a person like i never mm-hmm. even thought about that but then all of a sudden that adds to her her psyche as a character that she she thinks that she is you know and i don't think that she has a negative uh, to it. I think yeah. it's more she kind of sees herself as what she thinks the world expects from her and she takes a little bit of humility but more so pride in yeah. that she kind of stands apart from that. And this film does such a good job of showing what it feels like to be a teenage girl because you feel <laughs> empowerment one second and then utter self-loathing the next. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And they Which do a really good job Which is what the human condition of, is. Yeah, yeah you're not constantly proud or constantly fighting the good fight. Right. People make mistakes. People fuck up. And people try to rationalize themselves out of situations. But like at the end of the day, it's the mixture of both of those things that really make a good character. And especially Absolutely. a good character in a story. And then occasionally you drop acid and grow wings and some dude drags <laughs> you down. 
<laughs> in new parts. Yeah, 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 totally. <laughs> <laughs> the um, the other thing bed. I really loved about it was that it's very, uh, it's set in the 70s, and it's mm-hmm. wonderful to see people using rotary phones and, like, not being able to call someone when they're There is the something bar. that's really cool it's about magical. that in older movies, yeah. I miss not being able to be reached. Mm. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I kind of hate this thing. Yeah. Yeah. That's why I keep my phone on silent. Mm-hmm. I will look at it when I have time for it. I don't care who you are. Don't mm-hmm. call me. <laughs> I hate oh. it when people apologize and are like, sorry, I wasn't by my phone. It's like, don't apologize. You don't have to be attached to your phone oh, 24-7. Yeah. No, there's this I never apologize for that. I mean, no, I guess it's, you know, you know I think it's more, it's, it, it's it more a kindness. We're like, hey, hope it, hope it wasn't sure. a big deal. Yeah. Right. But uh, <laughs> how are you if over I, there? If I miss a call... And it's a while till I look at my phone. I'll just be like, hey, is everything all right? I was at work. Right, right. I'm busy. Yeah, I have a life. <laughs> I'm living. Um, I want Before we move on from this one, I wanted to talk real quick about uh, the idea. Like, we touched on it before about mm-hmm. the, the – it's a very taboo thing to talk about um, with her sleeping with an older man. Mm-hmm. Now – is and this movie doesn't really give any uh there's no real there's no morality no yeah. moralism is that a problem do we need to show do stories need to be altruistic where they show people need to get you know some kind of a comeuppance for something that is socially not acceptable or can we just take this as an honest story that holds to that holds true to a set theme and a set tone and a set message, without it being some kind of a social vengeance ending where there's an ending where it's like, oh, the 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 uh, the Alex, Alexander Skarsgård's character gets in trouble, or you know, or she she like something bad happens to her to you know to to punish her for her decisions. Like, is it okay to make a movie where they're not condoning it. They're not endorsing the idea. They're saying this happens, this happens right. and we need to be able to talk about it without being afraid of the taboo nonsense. Right. So I think that it's much more honest to present it without any moralistic lens um, because it does happen and very often nothing happens in terms of consequences for the man. Right. Totally. Very rarely is the man ever punished. Um, and to punish the woman is just so, we have the Bible already, okay? <laughs> like, we don't need any more of that bullshit in the world. We got enough. Hello to Eve. our Christian listeners. How are you? <laughs> we got enough with Eve being, you know, the one who created sin, all right? Right. I've had enough of that in mm. my storytelling. And I think it's much more honest to just show this, that it happened. And I don't feel like... Yes, it's wrong for him to engage with her, and I think that's pretty clear. Morally, he feels guilty. He about and it. He but does. he's he also very childlike. He's a yeah, he's an idiot. Kid. Like he's yeah. just kind of like, his portrayal of guilt, his admission of guilt, his ridiculously childish behavior. I love you. I want to get married. Which in no way is an excuse, by the way. Clarifying that real quick. No, no. Right. He should not be doing this, but I understand where his character's coming from. Right. Yeah. So, like, his portrayal as this fucked up man-child who feels guilty about what he's doing, but at the same time can't seem to help himself. I feel like that's damning enough. Mm -hmm. I feel like that's damning enough. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I... I agree with you, Liz. 
Um, I think where possibly the film does have a little bit of morality is that the whole situation kind of wakes the mother up. Kristen Wiig's character, I think if the movie solved any questions for anyone, it was her. Mm -hmm. And she kind of realizes, oh, this life this that I'm leading is a hazardous life for my children. And now I can't make these choices anymore because I've been blind. And this happened and I should have seen this happening. I had a feeling, but now I know. And I feel like it was good for the mother to realize what was happening. But I will say that scene at the end, he is such a child. When Monroe sees her on the beach and she's selling her pictures. And he does seem genuinely wounded that he has ruined this relationship. And he's such a child to believe <laughs> yeah. that, like, I'm still owed something from this. Yeah. But I agree with you. I think the fact that it was kind of like, this is what happens. Like, there was really no good way to get out of this situation made it so much more truthful. And, yeah, I very much appreciated it. Yeah. Yeah, I very much enjoyed it. Well, that's just kind of what it is. I, even without any sort of moral understanding or um, recompense or final, you know, summing it all up, mm -hmm. this is just a very real story about a girl who maybe doesn't understand what's going on with herself sexually. And I wouldn't say she was taken advantage of. But anyway, it just seemed as though it was very raw. And sometimes just reality and rawness doesn't have any moral understanding at the end or summation because it's just what happens. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's kind of what I really did appreciate it, appreciate about it. Just even the opening scene, it's kind of like glossed over. She's walking through the park. It's this beautiful lighting. It's this like golden glow that you see throughout the entirety of it. Cause you're seeing it through the eyes of this 15 year old girl who's coming to her own and understanding what, like what all this is. It's just very romanticized. And she's like, I just had sex. And then, yeah, the and then you find out amazing. who it's with, yeah. you know? That's and then as the viewer, you're like, also a 15 year old girl who's falling in love for the first time and, mm -hmm. and figuring out what her body is doing and how it's reacting to people and that's something we can all understand and, and then the morality aspect of it comes in because we are the viewer and we know that this maybe shouldn't be happening at all but right the way that the movie is displayed it's it's kind of open and it's one of those Whatever, things where it's like, you know, we are watching it, it's it's finding a middle ground. It's like we are watching a character who is comfortable with the with the with the the actions that she's taking. Mm -hmm. And we feel like we know better than her because we are aware of what's wrong about that. Well, but so is she. She very much knows that what she's doing is like, I know it's wrong, but that's what's making this that's, that's half of that's what's what so exciting about it. Yeah, is that she's She's found this resource to be able to lock in these feelings that she has just been wanting to express and explore for so mm -hmm. long. And all of a sudden she's got this, she's got this guy that she can just totally manipulate mm -hmm. and use and explore in any way that she wants use because <laughs> she is so much smarter than him, yes, even yes. though she's less than half his age. Mm -hmm. Like she just... She understands things and takes things in so quickly in a situation where she is just in control of every moment when she walks into that room, into that bedroom. Absolutely. And it's just like, he thinks he's got this and it's time to stop. I'm making the call. I thought about this a lot. And, and he like, just, that just turns into. <laughs> and, and she's just like, no. And like, he's getting pushed around by a 15 year old girl. Well, and there is a darkly that. funny thing about that. At one point, yeah. the mother said. 
they were in the kitchen together, mm-hmm. and the mother was asking her, oh, do you have a crush on anybody? Yes. And she was very mm-hmm. reluctant to say, uh, no, I don't, you know, because obviously she's having an affair mm-hmm. with the mother's boyfriend, and so the mother, was, the mother was like, why don't you wear a skirt and get more attention? And the For daughter was just thinking yours. to herself, well, I already am. <laughs> but they can't have that conversation yet. Mm-mm. Yeah. Very one interesting. Of the, one of my favorite parts of the film is actually Kristen Wiig's performance. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. it's the best work I think she's ever done. Reminding us that this is also a comedy. And we've been talking very much comedy. about the serious about yeah, the serious no, implications of it, but this movie is very funny. funny. It's yeah. so darkly funny. And she just nails it. She's so Dude, hilarious. She can play anything. And she really can. Have you guys seen the skeleton twins? Yes. No. Get out of here. The right, skeleton I, twins I, is so much fun Bill to Hader, watch. Kristen Bill Hader Wig. and Kirsten Wig are just like oh, Kristen Wig. Kristen Wig. Sorry, I'm Kirsten. already getting against Kirsten. 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 What is her name? Kristen. Christine. Yeah, she's whatever. fantastic in this movie. Yeah, she's great. She's wonderful. Yeah. And Bell Poli, I think it is. Oh my mm-hmm. gosh, so good. Yeah. So everybody's got like just really great chemistry in that movie. That's good. Uh, all right, we got to move on. Yeah. Thank you, Liz, for choosing that movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. That was a good I way to start to out. It, but yeah. I'm, I'm glad you pushed me. I... Honestly, the movies that all three of you chose, I have never seen. Oh. So I was seeing all of them for the first time, which was very exciting, <laughs> and it kind of tapped me into what you're all about in a way. Oh. <laughs> and it made perfect oh, sense. Oh, yeah, okay, that I guess, yeah. Each of you chose whichever movie <laughs> yeah. you chose. Yeah. I was like, okay, okay, okay. I mean, Got it. <laughs> I loved Marie Antoinette when I was... I saw it in theaters when mm-hmm. I was a teenager. So that's one I great. can't believe I'd never seen. Yeah, I've got yeah, a, I've right got a fun experience with yeah. Marie Antoinette, yeah, yeah. and we'll, we'll, we'll talk, talk about, about that in a minute. Yeah. Fun experience. Yeah. Oh, okay. So, um, All right. So, yeah, we're going to talk about now. Let's do my movie, if you guys don't mind. I would love to talk about Catherine Bigelow's Point Break, starring yes. Keanu Reeves, Patrick Swayze and Sweet Teen baby. Heartthrob Lori Petty. What about oh, Gary Busey? Busey. And Gary oh, Busey. Gary Busey. Teen Heartthrob Gary Busey. Teen Heartthrob. Oh, that's the one that I should have done. Gary Busey, his big teeth. His huge mouth of teeth. Utah. Teen B. Utah. Cover Gary. <laughs> what does he say? He's like, I'm as hungry as a rhino that... Oh, with right. some You're kind of weird problem, I could eat three of these things. And every oh, time he says that, I get sub. so disgusted. Oh. I'm like, look, two meatball subs, I've been there, bro. Three <laughs> meatball subs, Way you need much. to check yourself out. You this is yourself. intense. Yeah, oh my much. gosh. Uh, so I have yeah. to say, one of my greatest disappointments in life is that I'll never get to dance with Patrick Swayze. I'm just sad about you that. You want a hey, dirty he's, dance he's a little bit? For you. Yeah. He's waiting for you up there. No, no, he has to be a ghost. He's going to be the first one that's right here. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. Whoopi Goldberg. No eyebrows. Oh, no brow. No brow. So, oh, my God. Okay. Wait, side note. There's this guy that's been coming into the bar, and we've been putting him in the computer as no brow. Oh. For, mm. for yeah. obvious reasons. Wow. Okay. Okay. Whoopi Goldberg. Yeah. All right. I should put him in as Whoopi Goldberg. Yes. <laughs> Uh oh. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. So, Point Break, 1991, Catherine Bigelow. Mm-hmm. Uh, awesome story behind where this movie came from is uh, it was supposed to be a Ridley Scott movie okay. back in like 1986, and he was going to get 
get ready for it, Matthew Broderick as Johnny Utah uh, and uh, Charlie motherfucking Sheen uh, as Bodie. Oh, I'm so glad that and, didn't happen. And uh, the Tyler yeah. character was supposed to be more of like this kind of like uh, blonde bimbo beach Baywatch kind of girl, yeah. That's what was going to be going on. And then Catherine Bigelow came in because James Cameron, who who was then uh, her husband, um, he was on top of the fucking world, was kicking ass with Terminator, kicking ass a bunch of shit, uh, just did Aliens. He was in the middle of making The Abyss. And so he wanted to produce this movie, so he got Catherine Bigelow. Nobody really knows how exactly the gig came about, but you would be you would be hard-pressed to state that it wasn't uh, James Cameron's affiliation with her that got her this gig. Right. She wanted to do this big action machismo movie, and she wanted to cast um, Keanu Reeves, who at that point was l- pretty much literally just Bill and Ted. Right. Yeah. Ted right. from Bill and Ted. Right. As like this kind of like uh, uh, machismo action star, which everybody was like, that's not going to happen. Catherine Bigelow fucking called it. Made it happen. Because he was the action, big action star of the 90s. Yeah, like, right. That was his decade. You know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, he's back in a big way now. I've always Absolutely. been a Keanu Reeves apologist. I love Keanu. Uh, I, I am a sympathizer <laughs> with him. I I love that That's finally he came back with John Wick. And it was actually, Liz, me and you, yeah. you watched John Wick at my place a while ago. we ever watched together. And that was amazing. I remember when the, when the dog dies, spoiler alert. Uh, when the dog dies, like you were like, what are you making me watch? I wept. It's, it's sad. You're I supposed wept. to. It's supposed to break your heart. Well, yeah, the thing about Keanu Reeves is I think he's a good actor. I'll watch pretty much anything he's in because he's a good actor. He's not a phenomenal actor, but I just like that guy. It's he just, good he's, he's so, got he's something good. that works. Now, yes, I exactly. will say that he's not a good actor. He's not a because if you actor. have se- No, he's not even really a good actor. Because if you guys have seen Dracula... Yes. Oh, God. I am yes. Absolutely. Dracula. I Crap. love that. Bram Stoker's no, Dracula. Dracula. I know where the bastard sleeps. That's all about Gary Oldman for me, though. <laughs> I just thought he nice. looks... Nice. He just looks so good in costume. That's the thing. He does look good, He's too. Good He's looking. got, like, that kind of thing. And, you know, it's like, we might as well talk so about how much, how much we like the way He's Keanu nice Reeves guy. looks. Because oh, I'm pretty sure once we get on Patrick, yeah. we're going to kind of just stick on that for a little while. Oh God, let's talk about Keanu first. Yeah, Keanu. Um, Keanu all right, so all right, get back into it, Bird. So Kat, Catherine Bigelow <laughs> made this 1991 surfer bank robbery movie, which in and of its own, as a legacy that cannot be argued, Absolutely. redefined a lot of cultural things. This brought like the whole surf lifestyle to the forefront in a big way in the 90s. Mm-hmm. Like calling each other brother and dude and bro ham. You live by the surf. This was, you, you live by, yeah, by like the this is a big thing. No. This is way before that. I mean, <laughs> the events of like... Uh, no, like, no, I'm talking about the documentary. Yeah, the documentary? Yeah. Yeah, no, no, this is before that. Okay. But like the events of that documentary are obviously before yeah. this very much. Yeah. But... Um, Catherine Bigelow kind of just like created this macho, and I'm going to keep saying that word in this because that's exactly what's going on here. And she was able to redefine the action genre in a way where it created this kind of camaraderie between the male leads in an action film. It was, you know, in Lethal Weapon, we've gotten these things. And exactly, there is like, there is a bro hug mentality. To point yes. break that, you know, fa- the Fast and the Furious is a huge ripoff, if not in a nice way, an homage to 
Point Break. It is the exact same story. And look at where the Fast and yeah. Furious franchise is now. Yeah. Right. And Men it's all want built to be off able of that. To tell each other that they love each other. Exactly, but they're, but not, they're, allowed they're, not, allowed they're not allowed to. They're not allowed to. They don't have this to say anything. With toxic they just look into each other. This yes. is why I'm a feminist because I think that everyone should be able to express how they feel and allowed to have human touch without it being hypersexualized. Mm-hmm. Right. That's it. I mean, but also too, like if I was really best buds with Patrick Swayze, I think I'd still want to fuck him. Oh yeah. You know, I wouldn't tell him. <laughs> I'd be like, case. yo, you want to come over and hang out, dude? You want to cuddle, bro? Yeah. You got to use the bathroom before? Uh, whatever, whatever you want. Yeah, that's creepy. Sorry. <laughs> even Tyler, even Tyler during the film is like, oh gosh, don't turn on me, please. Yeah. I, I love you so much. I mean, there was really <laughs> like, like, I love that there's this, there's I this, uh, I there's a love story <laughs> in Point Break happening, but it really takes the back burner Absolutely. to the relationship being grown between Patrick, between Bodie and Johnny Utah. That's typical of all of these male action films. The love story is always the subplot and the real relationship is between the men. Absolutely. And there's something Die that's hard, really beautiful in that. There might be a lot of lost boys. Supernatural. Die Hard. Yeah. The relationship is really between, uh, what's his name? Family Matters. What? Oh, uh, what, what, Carl Winslow? Winslow. Mm-hmm. Winslow. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, no, I can get that, yeah. That relationship I thought maybe you were talking about developing. Die Hard talk- with a Vengeance and no, like right. Samuel Jackson. <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm like... talking about the original Die Hard. Right, all right. And how Bruce Willis and Winslow, I'm sorry, <laughs> yeah. I forgot no, no, his fine. name. Um, it, it, some people have said that that is his character from Family Matters. It's, yeah, it's he's hot. <laughs> he's got a family. Yeah, kids yeah. on the way. Some good bleed through. The thing is that what we see on screen is not Bruce Willis and his wife that much. We see his relationship with this other cop and they bond and grow together. And the most emotional scene is when Winslow thinks Bruce Willis is dead. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they get to see each other at the end too. And, they yeah. they and that is, that's hug. the moment. Mm-hmm. The bro hug, yeah. Well, you get a lot of that in this, in this movie. Oh, absolutely. I mean, yeah. the moment where Keanu or Johnny Utah, um, Utah, this might be way ahead of what we're talking about, but you know, uh, Patrick Swayze's character, he's in the Reagan mask. Mm-hmm. Or uh, the Kennedy mask. No, he's in the Reagan mask. Bodhi wears the Reagan mask. Okay. Very he's important. Climbing, power he's climbing climbing over the fence. Mm-hmm. And there's that moment where Utah has the shot. He decides, I can't do it. And they're just looking into each other. Ah! Yeah. Yeah, and he shoots like five times like just out of frustration. Yeah, yeah, it's just like, I sense. can't do this. All that Those, uh, yeah, his, yeah. his deep, dreamy blue eyes peering oh. out behind that Reagan mask is one of my favorite favorite moments in the movie also mm-hmm. too a guy in a reagan mask in a suit like like just lighting a a, a gasoline uh pump on fire and just like just laying was, waste to the suburban area killing time because he wanted you to catch he up wanted with him to know yes now see this is where that's okay that's my, say. my whole thing with the relationship between bodie and johnny utah is Obviously, it's very obvious what Johnny Utah is learning from this. He's learning that maybe like being clear cut, there there is no black and white. There is no fine line in this. And he's learning both sides of a story and he's becoming maybe a little bit more crook than he is cop. Right, right. Well, it's because Johnny Utah has been raised by the books. He's a by the books guy. Mm -hmm. And Bodhi is teaching him how to live between the lines. Right, absolutely. And Be a little look, bit more spiritually, I, follow your heart. Right. What I want to say about that is there's very Sorry to me. there's a very thin line between cops and robbers. Absolutely, mm-hmm. yeah. And that's why that whole idea 
uh, being presented as like a story plot point in action movies is always so is so rife with story because mm-hmm. where do you draw the line? Because mm-hmm. on some level, you have to understand who it is you're looking for in order to find them. True. You have to be in in the mindset. Takes Absolutely. one to takes one to kill one. One of my favorite parts <laughs> of this film is that, and I hate to say injury is a good thing, but I really like the storyline that Johnny Utah was being essentially groomed to play football mm-hmm. professionally, it seems, and then he got this knee injury, which took him on the back burner, and he had to choose a different profession. And I love that, like, the football was kind of, like, the introduction because men don't really know how to interact with each other Mm -hmm. unless it's a very, like, full frontal impact, besting each other type of scenario. And then it becomes more than that. Mm -hmm. So I love that, like, the input originally, he's like, oh, I'm going to get in good with these guys. I'm going to play football on the beach with them. Mm -hmm. Oh, they know me. I I was a college star. And that's, like, any any other director... Like any male director taken. doing this, it would have been completely lost. And I think that having Catherine Bigelow's like step in, there is almost like this kind of female gaze at, on, in action here that everybody's yes. talking about with Sofia Coppola's new film, uh, The Beguiled, which we'll get to later, yes, of course. Yes, yes, yes. Um, but there really much is like there's slow motion scenes of like them of like Keanu Reeves taking a shower and like them like playing football and just like super muscular and happy and tan and perfect and sexy. <laughs> like, and mm-hmm. she is really and drawing attention to this mm-hmm. in a movie that is branded for young men to go see because they want to get their action pumps. And before we go any further on that, this movie is the most actiony action movie ever. This Ooh, movie has skateboarding, football, <laughs> skydiving, surfing, surfing, bank robberies, shootouts, shootouts. car chases. <laughs> this movie has fucking everything. everything. It's that... even got Gary Busey. Gary Busey. Oh everything that means that everything that what it means to be a man that's in this movie. Yes, yes. That one, you know, when they um they're going in for the sting and they have the wrong group of guys. They got the red hot chili peppers. They got the red hot chili peppers. That was so that was so fucking raw. Yeah. That end part where um the guys got Keanu Reeves like up against the oh, lawn with the lawnmower. I actually and had to stand up. Feel the I had to stand right up and walk away from the screen while still looking at it because I was so anxious because I've never yeah. seen it. You, oh, this was your first time this watching Point Break. This is my first time you watching You are welcome. It. Me too. Thank you. All Thank three you. of us. High fives. So High fives. You got yes. all three of us. Control. It was out of control got in a em. great way. But that scene in particular, I was like, oh my god, oh my god, oh my god, his nose is right up against the blade. And then suddenly Angelo Gary Busey comes out of nowhere and shoots, or you know, like gets the guy with the to hour. let go of Keanu yeah. Reeves and it's like oh my god there's this relief but that was so intense <laughs> That's yeah. I had such That's a physical build. reaction to it I was like oh my god but then you know it, Keanu Reeves character Utah just stands up and like kind of brushes it off and that has to go with this like machismo attitude that like this stuff is gonna happen mm-hmm. but it's uh, just a day in the life. Oh that's what I wanted to say before I forget with uh like so Johnny Utah's learning this you know crook cop mentality mm-hmm. uh, from Bodhi. He's but I feel like a lot of people that I talk to don't get Bodhi's change in it. Because Bodhi does have a very major change in the movie. And Absolutely. it happens. He's, because from Bodhi's point of view, he is becoming friends with Johnny Utah. And he's got this guy who's a lawyer. That's what he says he is. He says he's a lawyer. Mm-hmm. And he's got this and guy. An and he's athlete. And he's in an athlete. And he's bringing him into this kind of spiritual world, world of like letting go and the just waves. letting the world like 
like letting the world like flow over you and and taking it as it comes and just being free and being your own person. The surf of life. He thinks that That's he's recruiting Johnny Utah into his crew. That eventually Johnny Utah is going to like he's going to start surfing with us. He's going to start robbing banks with us. This is going to be great. Right. And when Johnny Utah when he comes in and he's FBI. And he sees that he's an FBI agent at that bank robbery. Betrayed. Something inside of him is betrayed. And that's but what... I don't know about that. That's what that look is. That. That's what that look is no, what, that he gives him. Suddenly there's another test added there. Because there, that was... In realizing that that was Utah chasing after them, they all escaped, right? Mm-hmm. They're driving away. They ditched the car they were in. And then they figure, let's get another car. And instead of just immediately getting into that other car and driving away, and nobody would have found them probably, Swayze's character takes his sweet time burning that other car, Mm -hmm. burning the initial car. And not only does that uh, chew up time that they could have put in to get away. Well, he's got to clear the DNA from it. That's the the thing that they do. But that also is a major beacon in saying, like, hey, here's the car that we were just in. It's burning. They mm-hmm. could have just parked it in the gas station and gotten to the other car and gotten away. Well, no, they got to clear the DNA from it. That's a thing they do. They always burn the car. But the guys in the car were like, what's taking so long? What's taking so long? What's oh, right, taking right, so yeah, long? Yeah. Well, that's because, that's because he's... Swayze wanted to test No, Keanu. no, it's not a test, I don't I think. Feel I like think it he is, is shook. He's like, oh so. my God, my best friend, I think his, heart is, like he his heart is broken. Acclimated. And no, that's I... that look that he gives him when he's like, when he looks back at him and he's like, are you going to shoot me? I don't right. even know you No, that anymore. was a test. That was a test like, oh. you're not going to shoot me because I can see into you and I ah. see that you're this sort of person that's like me. Yeah. And that's why later on, he brings him into these other things that Keanu's character initially is like, I don't want a part of this, but Swayze's character is like, I see this in you. Even Tyler brings that up earlier mm-hmm. when they're at this the party. The that eye. she looks, or he looks for people and can see in people something that they might not know, and that's those are the people he'd bring into his circle. Mm-hmm. And so the other people in his circle are already willing and able to follow everything he has to say, but Keanu's character is someone that poses a challenge. But he also sees beyond that and sees that he wants more than this FBI lifestyle. So he immediately, within that moment of recognizing him at the bank, and then afterwards, he's like, I know that there's more to you than this. And that we have a connection that's beyond what your career is. Right. And that's why you're not going to shoot me. So when he's and looking back at I get, him And the the ground, totally, I get that. You're totally I, right. But I, I, I also think that like the, the test and everything, I think it's because he doesn't want to let him go. And he's very upset. He's done. And he is, he the reason he shows back up is that you're coming with me, and because he is, he is in a way in love with the guy. Yeah. And even though he got betrayed, other. he's like, Absolutely. no, 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 you're gonna come with me now. And that's what leads to Bodie when they go to that final bank robbery that they bring Johnny Utah with. Everything's out of control. The precision of everything is uprooted. We're gonna hit the safe. We never hit the safe. Hit the and safe. he shoots somebody. Almost just like he doesn't care about it. He cares about it when it happens, but he just goes for it because he's become unhinged. Because, because of his love. Because of exactly. Love. His yes. love betrayed because him and everything challenge. about it now. He's and like, he's questioning it. He's I going just... through the same trials that Johnny was going through in the first half of the movie. He's realizing like, maybe all of this shit about spirituality and it not being about the money was bullshit. Maybe it is about the money. I think I think too though, because Gary Busey says at the beginning, he kind of gets razzed for having this notion of like 
these bank robbers are surfers. And everyone's like, nah, nah, nah. Like, we think this is done. We don't even want to listen to this anymore. And Johnny Utah comes in. And he was like, all right, I'll listen to you. You're my new partner. Wow. Tell me your theory on who these bank we'll robbers are. And we'll check it out. So I think a lot of Bodhi's group had kind of like gotten used to like, people have given up on us. They mm-hmm. can't catch us. We're too they good. Don't know who we are. And then someone has insight into their group and says, like, no, I'm going to find you guys. And I think that really kind of, like, rocks them as well. And it kind of catches them off guard. Because once they start to get hunted even further, because the hunting had already stopped. People had kind of given up. They were, like, the group that could not be caught. Mm-hmm. And they start to get caught. And it happens to be his the love of his life, Johnny Utah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it really is the whole idea that we were talking about with yeah. this before. Like, it takes one to catch one. So it's like a, and it's, it's like an the more of a surfer he becomes, the more he starts to understand who they are, mm-hmm. and the more he and then he sees the ass and, and, he, he, and he pulls it all yeah. together. He's like, oh my god, <laughs> it's the ass, the ass. Yeah, well, yeah, that's what's going and then he on. It's like a, yeah. his life. It's like he a story. The life that he pursued. Exactly. Mm-hmm. It's like a story of sexual awakening for Bodhi. As a bank robber, as a surfer, as a spiritualist, and what Johnny Utah is stirring up in him, which he hadn't felt in a long time. He right. presents his persona. There of is like a huge getting it all change together. in Bodhi from yeah. when we first meet him, and he's the confident dude where it was like, this is the guy, he's the man, when we we're first introduced to his character, to when we finally see him, when he's about to essentially commit suicide by taking on this big wave that nobody can ever take on and no one would ever be crazy enough to try. And he's going to do it. And it's because he's been pushed to this length where he needs to prove to himself that his own bullshit that he's been spouting to encourage and uplift all these other people is not bullshit because he knows that it is. And he need and Johnny Utah shows him that. And he res- Johnny Utah respects that within him. Absolutely. Yeah. Him There's go. so much respect yes. between these two characters, it's even when they understand up. that they're on different sides of the law mm-hmm. and even when they don't agree on morals and stuff like that. Like even when... Bodhi goes so far as to like having a like Tyler, motorcycle man get kid uh, kidnap uh, Tyler, you know, and he's he even is like I didn't want to do that, man. Like I love Tyler, like I love her. Yeah. I want nothing bad to happen to her, but this is between you and me. Mm-hmm. And it's like there's there's a really strong story at the center of Point Break that I don't think yeah. it ever gets enough credit for. They've been cited so much within one another. So much. I mean, Keanu Reeves's character, Johnny Utah, came in just kind of rigid, almost anal, you know, perfectionist. And he had lost that spirituality. And you see that with the surfing. And what I found so funny is um, when they do the skydiving all together. And, the, you know, there's this camaraderie amongst the group. And the first they time they go skydiving, yeah. yeah. For the star. And at the end, Keanu Reeves goes, I must be totally losing it. <laughs> It's because he actually enjoyed that was a good it. That He knows that he's still, <laughs> yeah. you know, in this mode of being an FBI agent who's trying to take these guys down. But they're making him feel. He's like, yeah, he's I'm like, feeling all of a sudden. And maybe he had it before. I'm and even Tyler you. had picked up on that, that he always goes into everything with this scrutinizing look, this critical look. And it's alleviated. Like, he's actually enjoying himself. And sometimes he forgets how to do that. I and know where the bastard are... sleeps. <laughs> <laughs> My favorite part in the whole movie. In Point Break? In Point or Break. Or Dracula. In Point Break. We can start talking about Dracula right now. No, we'll let's talk not. About Dracula. Let's talk about we, Point we better Break. not. Point Break. Johnny Utah and Tyler are out because they had just had that midnight surf. Mm-hmm. And the rest of the gang came back in and even um, uh, Patrick Swayze, they were, uh, someone said to him, um, 
oh, it looks like we're missing someone. We lost someone. Patrick Swayze's like, leave the fire going for him. And then we cut to Keanu Reeves and Tyler out in the water, and they're both riding their boards, and they're kind of just together and, like, reminiscing over what had just happened and what's to come. (laughs) And then there's this cut to Tyler's knee, and (laughs) Keanu Reeves is rubbing her knee and going, goosebumps. (laughs) Ridiculous. He's like, Ooh, goosebumps. Yeah. And then they are Human having sex on the beach. Time. It's like out of <laughs> control. It's, it's out of control. He's losing thank his you. mind. In that so. moment, I said out loud, thank you, Mike Burge. <laughs> goosebumps. That's, that's all He's it like, is. Ooh, um, goosebumps. I think every like, relationship <laughs> I've ever had can be summed up in that little like 10 seconds right there. But you know exactly Ooh, what I'm talking about, right? Goosebumps. Yeah, oh, I know exactly yeah. what I'm talking about. the zoom in of her knee. And I he, own his Point Break on VHS. <laughs> I'm ridiculous with this movie. This is one of my favorite movies. I think it's a perfect movie. What it, it sets out to do, perfect. it does magnifique. Yeah, is, yeah. That is, you cannot do any better than that without really stepping into the world of satire. It's almost <laughs> so goofy, it feels like it it's is. making fun of those types of movie, but it never hits that, it never hits that. Almost. It always it's treats almost. it with a, with a decent amount of respect where it's like, we're into this. This is fun. Yeah. They do make fun of some of the surfer ideology, you know, where like yeah. we're, they're going around trying to pick up uh, samples of hair. And uh, Gary Busey's. Yeah, that like, is. Fun. Oh, I'm trying to make a wig for my wife. Oh, like, <laughs> yeah, it's like, yeah. He's like, great excuse. Yeah, my hair. And his friend's like, he could have booked us, dude. We were smoking pot. And the guy's like, he yeah, cut but my he like, hair. cut my hair. He took something from me. That's I so can't good. believe I've never seen this. I mean, denim pants, leather pants, <laughs> denim pants. leather vests, and nothing underneath it. Long hair. Yeah. Almost like, every character's wearing pants. No skirt. Owner of a certain bar to get a leather vest. And I'm not there yet. To get a leather vest? Put on point break. (laughs) Put it on yourself up. Hey, this is coming back around. Fashion is cyclical. Wear those leather (laughs) pants now. (laughs) Um, So back to like the relationship between Brody and... Utah, right? Bodhi. 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 Sorry. Bodhi Sapa. He's Sorry. the Bodhi Sapa. Yeah. Bodhi Sapa. Yeah. It's the Bloody Marys are getting yeah, together. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, also, bro culture. Yeah. Right. Dude. Anyway, um, so this relationship between the cop and the outlaw is something that I think influenced so many, you know, uh, television shows and films afterwards. Uh, to the point where, like, this relationship between the cop who's undercover infiltrating the group, it's a trope now. Mm-hmm. And it's almost always viewed as a love relationship yeah. in mm-hmm. the subtext. And I think it's amazing. And I want to say also, you were talking about how Swayze's character, like, sees people. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something I see in Swayze's work all the time. He's always an outsider. He's always the man. And he always brings unexpected people in. Yeah, that is kind of his thing. He does it in Dirty Dancing. He does it in Roadhouse. Roadhouse is the big one, too, where he's just like, I'm coming on in. You have no... Being a bartender, there are many times where I'm like, yo, be Patrick Swayze from Roadhouse right now. Take control of the situation in a cool way. Yeah. Yeah, he really does. Doesn't usually work. But. Test always... Johnny Utah, and he says, "All right, sorry, you have to choose me or Tyler." And then Johnny's like, "All right, Tyler." Yeah. <laughs> no, but, but he like, does really, choose him does. time and time yeah. again. Well, at, at the very end, he lets him live his truth, he which is him great. Well, That's lives to experience the thing he has been searching for his mm-hmm. entire life. I love but... that question. He says, "You still surf." 
Every day. Every day. And his hair is longer. Oh, his hair is longer. I Actually, noticed that immediately. Really funny though, too. That's because they had to reshoot the ending. Really. And uh, Keanu Reeves was already filming Bill and Ted too. So that's Ted's, exactly that's like Ted's him. hair. Yeah, that's what's going on there. Yeah. Ted, you still that's surf? Just, I just every, every day. That's, uh, every day, dude. Every day, dude. Every day, sixty-nine. That's, that's just one of the <laughs> sick. He That's was just... that person. He's always going to be that person. Mm. He can't help it. I'm actually having a so really fun ways. time with Keanu Reeves lately because I've got several podcasts lined up. Mm-hmm. You know, we're doing one on The Matrix very soon. Ooh. And uh, we're doing a, a, a John Wick 1 uh, retrospective now. And we're like, it's like, it's, uh, I'm just, I'm so just... In love with him. Just, just immersed in, in Keanu Reeves right now. We're going to have to do, uh, what is the Lake House pretty mm-hmm. soon? Oh, yeah. Gonna, I love that movie. Are that you was, serious? That was cool. Yes. Ooh, am I smelling a, a notebook oh. part two? Should here? we do the, that? The lake house? No, I would totally do that. Oh, uh, shit. <laughs> a <Okay>. magic mailboxes <laughs> galore. I know. That's what's so bizarre. Okay, let's not go. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Another cast. As long as it's a speed slash the lake house, Yo, okay. then we're I good will to be go. There okay. For speed. Okay. I'm there. All right. Sandra. I've been watching that movie since I was five. Let's do it. On VHS. On speed, since she was bad. Oh, shit. The main thing, though, is just Swayze. He's amazing. Swayze. He's amazing. Oh, God. He sees people. He does. He sees no, people. he does. He sees Through a mask. Soul. It's he, he, wants, he wants people. us to be the best we can be at and all he, times. He, like, he's so wounded always, but he's always so, like, there's this tenderness to him. I get very emotional. And those abs. Oh I mean, like, he's got some legs on him too, oh girl. God. His butt is amazing. Dude, don't even fucking get me started on this shit. Somebody actually, <laughs> somebody, somebody tried to tell me that Ghost wasn't a good movie the other day, and I was almost oh. like, great. Now I have to spend the next seven years them. in prison. Yeah. Because I'm gonna have to kill yeah. you. I know. That's why I don't know who it is. It's ridiculous. Who was this so that I can? I'm not telling you who do it was. The work. I'm not telling you who it was. Oh God. I, for your own I feel safety. Like I for your own safety. You know exactly who it was. I know who it was. Probably. Yeah, I do. But uh, all right. Any any closing thoughts? I mean, like Catherine Bigelow. I think I stated it before, and it's 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 a very broad, it's a very broad statement, and it might seem small in like its simplicity, but I think it is in every single scene of this movie, every fiber of what they're trying to do. Catherine Bigelow, just her experience as a woman alone. And tackling this type of story and telling it in the emotional way, the sensitive way that you normally wouldn't get with some kind of machismo action hero kind of thing, like male director. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Like it, there, there is a there's a, a sensibility to its sensitivity. There That's is something so there that it's like, wow, you would never get that from a man yeah. ever. I think, I think too. Oh, sorry. But I think, too, that you get that women's perspective on what guy culture might be, because I think about that moment when um, Johnny Utah is first brought into the department. Um, and I can't remember the actor's name, but he's pretty well known. John C. McGinley. And he's bringing him through the department and yes. talking to him about what his new job will entail. And he just turns to him and goes, you're young, dumb, and full of cum. That's a great line. <laughs> it's a great line. Holy it's shit. It's a great line. But then that brings into... To, um, the forefront this notion of what it is like a locker room to be a oh absolutely yeah so that's not neglected which i really appreciate about it mm-hmm. but then you do have the sensitivity brought in thereafter yeah so that's like have, uh yeah. do you guys watch breaking bad 
Yes. Yes. I'm. I haven't Pink finished Man. it all yet. I'm. I'm still running through it. No, Dean Norris. Yes, uh, he's awesome. His character, um, Hank. Uh, as as the DEA guy, like yeah. he is just like, let's get out there and fuck them. Like he's <laughs> yeah, he's like super yeah. like machismo in front of them. But like whenever we see him isolated, he's or he's having Marie. like That's panic nice. attacks and he's very yeah. sensitive. And it's I love that character yeah. so much because that really, really is yeah, that's very true. Yeah, so we it's 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 very amazing uh, when a writer or a director or an actor can approach. Uh, that whole idea where it's like men need to act like this in order to be respected. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. you know, you're getting a character like Johnny Utah coming into this world he's that he's totally used to. It's all machismo. It's all nonsense. Mm-hmm. And he's he's about to be introduced to a world that is very much, no, you can be sensitive. You can yes. be who you want to be. You can speak your feelings. He's got yeah. that great line that he says when he's leaving um, Tyler a message. And he's like, Fuck! Why can't I ever just say what, what I, I mean? Feel. Yeah, it's, it's like, like what the hell? yeah, dude. Like, can't that's you? it. Do it. The one thing, or the last thing for me, anyway, the the love story between two men, right? I just think that women want to think hot guys are fucking each other. <laughs> no, men want to think that too. I'm not a man, so I can't speak for that. So I no, can. but on another level, like it's so true that it's a love story because I mean. They are permanently changed by each other. They'll never be the same Forever. again. And, you know, when Keanu throws his badge at the end of the film. Because he'd finished his Cue music. Because he just let go of the love of his life, you know? And he will never be able to go back. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's all over. He's yeah. going to leave everything behind and he's going to move forward with and the lessons that he learned. what love is. Yeah. Yes, very even much. He had Tyler. He was still searching. He lets him go. Yeah. He lets him go out there. He yeah. could have taken him in. He could have. He had could've, him handcuffed and everything. Everything was ready to go. Saved his life. And he just asked him, and he, he gave it to him. He's like, he said you can't right. be caged. Yeah, he said, you know, I can't. You can't do that. Cage, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. One of my favorite things about this film is Lori Petty. I think she's phenomenal. She doesn't get a lot of screen time in this film, but she is a person. She's not a woman. Like she's not over feminized in this film no she if anything she's her. very she's very masculine yeah, she's not, in a way yeah i i love it mm-hmm. i love seeing a woman on screen and that's i really that was catherine that was uh bigelow's choice right what, to take it from this kind of Baywatch, bimbo. Yeah, big boob bimbo, bimbo to short haired petite uh just kind Dirty, of like athletic, yeah athletic. absolutely Person. And just insanely, even like more confident than any of the men that she's surrounded by. Yeah. yeah. Like yeah. she like calls the shots. Nobody pushes no, her around. No, and when no. Johnny thinks that he can, that he can push her around or manipulate her, she's like, yo, buddy. I've been here before. Even the out. way she woke I've him learned. up shooting the pillow next to him. Yo, that shit. That That is just like, oh, that's great. She's like, like, are your parents really dead? And he's like. No, my parents live in Colorado. Or whatever he said. He's like, they've been well and good for forever. I know where the <laughs> God, him, like, I'm so happy that you like this movie that you I hadn't love seen it this before. Movie. That's great. Because it's not just about a cop getting the bank robbers, it's about a cop getting the bank robbers, realizing who he is, but the spirituality aspect. There's this whole, like, you know, 
There's a lot of sexual tension That's between Kurt, uh, Patrick Swayze and Keanu Reeves. And then also there's a love interest and then, you know, this camaraderie, but also this, like... He's also got a father figure going on with Gary Busey, you know? Yes, like, Angela, there's a lot of different Earth things at play here there's that so are really stuff. much about, like, the male experience yeah. and, and the things the that you have to go through to become yourself. You mm-hmm. Between men. Yeah. Including love. Including love. Well, we're going to close it out on that on Point Break. I think we hit all that just fine. We're going to go on a quick break here. And when we come back, we're going to tackle Sofia Coppola right off the bat. So uh, stay tuned and uh, we'll talk to you in just a little bit. Hey guys, thanks for listening to this new special edition of Over Drinkers. Just wanted to let you know real quick that we've got a bunch of other podcasts going on. Hopefully you know about that. One in particular that has to do with this, we have a podcast that covers uh, this year's recent Wonder Woman. Definitely check that out. And if you don't like podcasts, we also have an amazing article that deals with the uphill battle that Wonder Woman herself and the movie has to deal with, written by Bernadette Gorman, who is actually in this podcast so you should definitely check that out check out all of our writing we've got tons of tons of tons of great content on the site share it read it comment love it let us know that you like us because we already know that we do we can tell we can see when you're watching all right let's get back and talk about some more awesome directors Welcome back to Overdrinkers. Uh, we're going to jump right back into it. Uh, we're going to be talking about... Well, I'll, I'll let Bernadette uh, take the reins from here. Bernadette, what are we going to be talking about next? All right. The movie that I chose... Well, the director that I chose for this cast was Sofia Coppola. Um, I love her work. I have not seen everything that she has done, but I've seen a very good chunk of it. And I had this wrestle with myself. I said, which one should I talk about? I know Lost in Translation is heavily beloved, and it's a lot of great stuff to talk about, but the one that always resonated with me personally was Marie Antoinette. Mm-hmm. Talked to Burge about it, and he was like, you know, I want to talk about that film too. And I said, great, because I really want to get into it. I think it's a film that possibly has not been seen by as many people as Lost in Translation, and I would love to introduce you it's to Marie Antoinette. It's definitely like her least talked about, I guess. Yeah, I mean, Somewhere I so. is a weird one. Mm-hmm. Um, with, yeah, uh, I haven't seen Somewhere. I've I seen Somewhere. Either. I've seen Somewhere. It's You've it's really it's this. really good. It's uh, the one that you're kind of, most people are in the middle about. Okay. Because it's, it's themes are very, like, odd. Again, like, they're very just, like, Sofia Coppola makes movies about... Uh, isolation and yes. loneliness and yes. yes very much too about privilege femininity. right yeah but and it's and Marie Antoinette I think is a really good choice for that because like a lot of people we could talk about lost in translation on end for days but Marie Antoinette is a really good choice because yes. that's again one that I don't think most people are used to hearing people discuss or know that much about right so what, what's Marie Antoinette it. about so Marie Antoinette tells the story, not the one that you know from history class, kind of her upbringing in this caste system of royalty and what it means to be 15 years old, moving to a new country, being forced to have all of this thrust upon you as the union of Austria and France and being the woman to join these two nations at the ripe young age of 15 years old when she comes across 
And Marie Antoinette is told beautifully in a beautiful color palette, beautiful costumes, a kicking soundtrack. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The beauty of this film is that the actors, I mean, obviously it is set in France, but they speak English. And of course. Of course. Yeah. To make it more relatable. And then this awesome pop soundtrack, which just fits. Yeah, pop punk. That fits the era so well and the costuming so well. And it really shows this woman coming into her own. And what happens to you when you have all this expectation thrown on your shoulders. And what they are trying to show, because when you learn about Marie Antoinette in history class, you hear about the villain Mm -hmm. who spent france into ruin and kind of brought yeah she's very vilified and you know this film in particular isn't necessarily saying like you should think she's a hero or a villain it's just saying this is what happened in a very accessible way which i really really enjoy and kirsten dunst not kirsten which i think i mispronounced on the beguiled podcast a bunch (laughs) but Kirsten Dunst is such a relatable actress that she really draws you in to this story. And it's so well written. I love that a lot of the backtalk about her is played over top of scenes where you see her reaction to what people are saying about mm-hmm. her. Mm-hmm. I just think the writing in this film, which is also Sofia Coppola, she wrote and directed this film in 2006. And I just love it. I think she wrote it perfectly. I think the relationships are perfectly executed in this film. I think the acting is great. Um, Yeah, I have almost all good things to say. I don't think I can find a true flaw in this film. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I'd love to get into it. I mean, I think that it's, uh, like, Um, Marie Antoinette is just, like, how Sofia Coppola decides to approach that character is, like... It, it, like they want she wants to kind of like relate to her a little bit and understand mm-hmm. where she's coming from in all of this but at the same time keep in mind the the terrible things that this person was accused of doing right. and I think she kind of presents it in a way where it's like it's not her fault really she was just kind of like a victim a of this circumstance right. yeah right it's funny seeing it or it's funny talking about it after talking about Diary of a Teenage Girl because they're the same age mm-hmm. coming into the sexual fruition. Um, but there's this expectancy with Marie Antoinette, whereas she with the character a from a teenage diary, it's just a girl. She's mm. just a girl. But with Marie Antoinette, she has all these political She's a ruler. Um, right. She's sideways sort of um she's broke stipulations piece. that she has to adhere to on top of being a girl that's discovering who she is mm-hmm. that has all these sort she has a lot of weight that yeah. she's carrying around um all of austria is depending on her mm-hmm. all of france is depending on her she and has she to produce an heir she has to marry and be this um uh, matriarch to an entire country mm-hmm which almost wholly depends on her sexuality and mm-hmm. her being able to bring Louis into Louise into um, the bedroom and consummating, right. not only consummating, but bringing a child into mm-hmm. the situation. A son. A son. It has mm-hmm. to be a son. It can't just be a daughter. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, something I found very interesting about the film when I watched it for the first time, I was, I was 16 or 17 and I watched it in theaters um, and I watched it with my high school boyfriend's mother, 
Like she and I used to go to the movies together and we had a very interesting relationship because she resented me while at the same time wanting me to be like the mother of her grandchildren. Um, I don't like you, but I'm going to turn you into something that I can accept. (laughs) No, she loved me, but she didn't like my influence over her son. Right. And it was very interesting watching the film that way. Um, Granted, Louis' mother is not in the film, film. um, but... You know, all these elements of power and dynamic. And I remember talking to her about it afterwards and saying, at the time, I didn't like the soundtrack. But now that I'm older, I totally get it. Yeah. It was the anachronism of it that bothered me. Not that it didn't. It's jarring when you first get it. Yeah. Anachronistic. And I didn't get it at the time because I wasn't into that music then. I've gotten to know people who really love that music as I've become an adult and i have this appreciation for it now i didn't before but it totally fits it's it's a frenzy of youth Mm -hmm. it makes you feel like a teenager like the music like anybody who hears i want candy i don't care if you're 78 you are a 14 year old kid again and you're just like yeah Yeah, there it is yeah, and even the Strokes was a big part of me, like, mm-hmm. in high school, like, growing up and listening to the Strokes and hearing the Strokes in this. It's like, oh, she's growing up just like I grew up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But she's so, not, because so she... There's that one scene where it's her 18th birthday, mm-hmm. and they have this massive party for her. Oh, yeah. And, you know, you don't realize her age until halfway through the movie. Right. When mm-hmm. they say, you know, they're wishing her happy birthday, and she's like, oh, I'm just 18, and then they're up until, you know, the sun rises, yada, yada, and then they cut to... The morning after scene, mm-hmm. and it's this supposed to be debaucherous, chaotic room that everyone partied in, but it's just like cakes and you know these beautiful that flouts is, that had uh, once been filled with immaculate drinks, and and the servants are cleaning up, and it's but then you realize too that they're just teenagers that are partying, having oh, a good yeah. time, but they mm-hmm. have such privilege, yeah. such privilege. It's the the right. line that the line that uh, uh, teen heartthrob Jason Schwartzman. Uh, says when 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 his him. when when his uh, dad ripped torn ripped torn really as, good oh my goodness really what really a good great choice to cast that that Absolutely. is just he just when he first gets out and he's just like how's her bosom the father, and the guy's the like father. yeah and the guy's like oh if, if I oh no I if I look, if I, I look at look. the queen I wouldn't he's like oh, that's the first thing I'd look at <laughs> you get a really good feel of who this guy is and you kind of like you have this distaste yeah. for him but at the same time you're like. This guy is kind of like on the front. We know exactly who he is. Whereas, you know, the women that were introduced to um, Judy Davis plays the uh, what is what who she she's um, she plays uh, the one that's pretty much giving her all of her lessons. Yeah. She's, oh, yes. Yes. Yeah. She's, she's head of yeah. She's everything. the one that's like, you know, that there, I cannot think of a better scene uh, in the movie than the when she's coming from Austria and they're like, you're going to enter in this tent as, Austrian. as an Austrian on Austria and you're going to exit on, on French, French land and you're going to be, uh, you're going to be a French person. And it's like, and they give where they get a dog and everything. And that's, I think that's a great idea because that connects everybody, no matter what you think about Marie Antoinette. And I honestly think that most, most especially in America, most uh, film viewers that would be interested in going to see Marie Antoinette in 2006 have a very 
limited understanding of who Marie Antoinette was, you know, like, oh, French Revolution, off with her head, beheaded, and let them eat cake, which is not true, and they they even bring it up there, yeah, you know, it's, yeah, I love that scene. Me too, with the black lipstick, lipstick. she's painted as a villain in that, and she was like, that's preposterous, I would never say that. that. Mm -hmm. But that was so interesting, because that was such a small segment throughout the entirety of it, it was almost as an aside, because they just, like, she said that Let them because the cake. movie like almost got to this it absurd point. You know, it kind of like grew to this large point where the hair was so much larger than it had ever been before. She's wearing pink in her hair and black lipstick and whatnot, and then it turns and the into it gradually it comes back around where she's a mother and she's part and of more nature. Maternal. And yeah, she's part of nature. She wants and they wipe the eggs off less. before her children grab them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, after she becomes a mother, that's when like all of this kind of stuff goes from like uh, you know she's still interested in fashion and she, she's yeah. still interested in like the high life and spending money. Mm-hmm. And being extravagant, but she's also kind of like, she's got this maternal instinct now that's sparked inside of her where she's like, oh, like goats and yeah, flowers. Let's go back to the ripped torn aspect where you said that you see who he is up front Mm -hmm. because you see him at this stage of his life. What I love about the film is that all of the costuming, all of the fashion, all of the extravagance, it's almost like what she is using to numb the pain of all of this responsibility. Absolutely. She's an addict because she has so much responsibility thrust on her. She has a husband who seemingly does not want anything to do with her. I think he's until later, until far later. Yeah, until far later. I think it's he's for one another. Yeah, I don't. I don't think that it's he's gay. I think it's that he's got problems with uh, intimacy. Right. And he doesn't really understand them because he's a child. Absolutely. And it takes. We're too young to reign. Right. Exactly. That's the line that I was talking about. Where it's like these are teenagers. They don't really understand the complexities of what they're dealing with yeah and like and danny uh houston comes in and he's like he needs to be able to explain to him like Mm -hmm. sex as locks which is something that he's into and keys and all of a sudden boom there it is he gets it it's like being able to connect this thing that he's interested in i thought it was a lack of attraction no, I think no. it's just he was so well, young. He was so young. Right, because he, he genuinely is. Before she came in, and they were all like laughing, like, I hear she's beautiful. I hear she's very nice. And that's all they're thinking about. Oh, she's beautiful and she's nice. Oh, you're so lucky that she's Ugh. beautiful and she's nice. I and he's just reduction. like, this I love... is the responsibility I have yeah. that I don't necessarily want. I love when you Keep first see hunch. Louis, he's hiding almost behind the other two gentlemen in front of him. Mm -hmm. He was like, let me introduce you to my grandson, Louis the 16th. And then he steps out and he's like, all right, so nice to meet you. Yeah, he's he's a child. He would rather play games and hunt with his friends or like, Toil away at like making keys or I just guess. reading about keys a lot. Did you know that the <laughs> first and, wood, and like those scenes in the bed are so are so uh, are so intimate because like even though they've got this huge weight thrust on both their shoulders, more so hers than his, mm-hmm. to the point where he doesn't even really understand uh, the consequences that could come from this because the consequences are not his to bear. If she cannot handle this, it's her, her fault, fault. Mm-hmm. and she is going to be. They're gonna get rid of her, and the 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 you know the the truce that's been made between these two countries could be lost. Like that's in the balance, and he's just like, oh, did you know, like the first uh, locks and keys were made of wood. Can you believe that? Isn't that great? And she's like, oh yeah, that 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 is that is that is great. That's interesting. I think that when I saw this film, I was also at the same time taking um, European history course for college credit and learning about the Habsburgs and. 
just how powerful they were and how concerted and intellectual they were. Like, Maria Teresa, she discovered Mozart. Really? Maria Therese? Maria Therese. Yeah. So her mother discovered Mozart and, you know, was his patron. And so you have this incredibly powerful family, intelligent family, and they have to broker this peace and they use it. I think Marie, Marie Antoinette was her youngest daughter. I might be wrong about that. No, I think she was. They use uh, her. Second to youngest. I feel like I read that somewhere. Okay. Of like 12 or 15 kids. Yeah. Oh yeah. my yeah. goodness. Yeah. Her brother that came to visit was fairly old. It's, yes. Yeah, she was. Older. Mm-hmm. Uh, Maria Teresa's near youngest daughter, they just trade her for this political power, and it's stunning, and she accepts it. She has to. She doesn't have a choice. Yeah, she doesn't have it. That's made very clear in the beginning, like when she wakes up and it's like, time to go, and that's it, and you're gone. They take everything away from her that made her who she was, and she's brought into this place, and now I think very much, Brenda, what you said, like she is... uh, she is substituting. She is using this uh, lifestyle of access to be able to try and fill Go what was walls. taken away from her that yeah. maybe she's not even old enough to be able to articulate or and understand. And she doesn't at first. Mm-hmm. It is an adopted type of responsibility and it's an adopted response mm-hmm. to it. Absolutely. Because at the beginning of the film, you don't see her indulging. She's learning the ropes. She's, she's figuring out where her place yeah. is. And then once she realizes that she can't do what she is supposed to do because someone else is inhibiting her from doing that, she's like, all right, well then I'm going to use what I have to kind of numb myself mm-hmm. to this awful thing that I'm going through and that I can't produce because I can't constipate my marriage. My husband doesn't want to do it. And meanwhile, my sister-in-law is now pregnant mm-hmm. and giving birth to a son. And that's probably one of my favorite scenes and my when she leaves and she's sobbing. Right. Yeah. Because she, like, showed face. Yes. So mm-hmm. happy. I'm, oh, I can't believe it. Oh, this is so great. And Absolutely. She, you know, she retires to her area. Mm-hmm. And she's I just being that. pressured the whole time. Yeah. And her that's mother, just like... I mean, like, the, the movie is marginalized by her mother's insistence upon what she should be doing mm-hmm. in her station. Um, everyone's relying on you. I should be so happy about your brother's marriage and, you know, this other child coming. But it's all just, you know, clouded by the fact that you're not upholding your duties. Exactly. Blah, blah, blah. It's kind of messed up. And Mm -hmm. I think that her husband has incredible sympathy for her, which is why he looks the other way when she has her affair, because he knows she has nothing. And that was the other reason why I thought he he was gay. Because... He allows her to have this emotional and sexual relationship. It's not emotional, it's passionate. It's just passion, pure passion. Oh, yeah, she definitely is finding, you know, he is a piece of cake that she can eat. Like, that's (laughs) it. Like, like, she hasn't been, she has never felt that wanting or having been wanted by someone else. And this person traveled 10 days, he said. 10 days because he wanted her and she wanted that feeling of being wanted and she had already had a child so that that necessity was um uh taken care of you know Mm -hmm. uh quenched essentially Mm -hmm. and then this other part of her the sexual part of her was awakened that was not awakened by her husband right Um, you know a lot of the movie though was more or less when I watched it, because I've only ever seen it the one time, so I'm seeing it with fresh eyes. I just watched it last night, 
and it was just all about this embellishment and uh, you know Edwardian sort of decor and whatnot and to be honest, when I was watching it, it was more about the visual than the actual storyline because oh, the storyline—it's very much uh, uh, style over substance. This style whole movie, style over substance, because it was and there's just still like, a lot of substance, substance, but a lot of substance, but, but also style. There were for all days. these beautiful and moments. That's where a it's marker of the time. Be a part of any of it. There needn't be any dialogue or anything. It was just like her, like in a boat, like running her fingers along in the water and whatnot. And so, like anything that was separate from that was kind of just like okay. Right. Um, I think every time that I've watched this film, I've always remembered these people do not have showers. They have baths. <laughs> they all look so beautiful and so well put constantly. together. They are I, amazing I specimens they really of that way. Though. They probably didn't. I mean, the whole film is a pop of color. It's all candy. It's candy mm. pop it film. Cake. It's like cake. And it's so beautiful. Everything about it is cake. She yeah. hurts her eyes. It's so sweet. Which, by the way, yeah. too, the, the the piece of man cake so that she uh, has her sexual Dorian exploits Gray. with. Oh my goodness! Can Dorian. you believe him? <laughs> there he is. There he is. No. He's uh, looking at her from across the table, just with. I only eyes. know. I really only know him I from uh, the fall, and he's him. so creepy in that. And then it's like, and also Tom Hardy. Tom Hardy. Tom Hardy just pops up. Baby Tom. Well, not really baby Tom. He's baby Tom. That's he? He's uh, like that jealous guy who's kind of like, why does why does she want to like be with him oh. instead of me? Yeah, Ramont. He's Mozart in the uh, oh, when they're playing okay. uh, the the card game. Because her friend was like, you're Mozart just jealous because she doesn't want you. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, and uh, there was something. Yes, I'm sorry. Yeah, uh, if it, if it comes back, um, the. Uh, I wanted to talk about real quick uh, with Sofia yeah. Coppola. Uh, did you get it? Yeah. What you got? Go for it. So I love that they show her reading Rousseau in the Palace Gardens. Mm-hmm. That they clue us into the cultural context of the Enlightenment that started in France. That mm-hmm. was key to you know all the founders of the Constitution, the founding fathers of the United States of America, Jefferson stealing from John Locke, and life, liberty, and property being changed to pursuit of happiness, right? I love that there's this relationship to the American experience, and it's an American film, first and foremost. Um, I mean, they made it in Versailles. They made it in Versailles. Yes, so beautiful. It's beautiful. I'm not saying... They got to shoot there, too, which you're not allowed to do. Right. And... It's just, it's so wonderful to see that and to see how she's blamed for her husband choosing to support them in the war against the British and how it all comes down. And she didn't choose to empty the coffers to help the Americans overthrow a monarch. No. no. Neither of them did. she gets blamed for it. Yeah. No, he chose to. Well, he was also, too, I think they're also very he sympathetic to his character, to like, where he's just, like, he's, he's got all weak. these, like, he's, he's got all these, he like, advisors and stuff around him telling him, like, we'll be this is what you should be doing. And he's like, oh, I don't know if that's and a good then, idea. I don't really understand. If you say so. When it comes back, the revolution comes to France. Mm-hmm. I mean, the whole story is very poetic, but and I really like that Sofia Coppola. She decides to kind of tell this more personal, intimate story yes. of who the like the woman that Marie Antoinette was, and and maybe why she did these things or why she's like believed to have been this type of person. And it's because like they they deal with like Sofia Coppola has been accused with almost all of her films. Mm-hmm. 
as uh, like dealing with like this kind of unregarded privilege. An where, apologist. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, you know, like, I think it's it's a very big, it's, it's really sad that when Sofia Coppola does something that everybody's like, you know, everybody says the only reason Lost in Translation got made is because she's Francis Ford Coppola's daughter. She was and it's like, oh, she had the opportunity and she could blah, 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 and she could do that and blah, blah. Oh, it's like, that look. That she ruined Godfather 3. Everyone always says that. She is not the worst part of Godfather no, she's 3. she's not. She's not good in it, but she's not the worst part. No. But, um... The uh, Sophia Coppola being Francis Ford Coppola's daughter and being able to have the connections like was she able to maybe get uh, more funding than would have been normal? Totally. Was she able to get Bill Murray because she was friends with Al Pacino and he was friends with Bill Murray and was able to neg him into being well, able to Bill like Murray get it? Say no to anything. No, Bill Murray, like, is very hard to get in touch with. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And so it's like, like, yes, like, there, there are obvious things here, but also those are the things that Sofia Coppola, as a filmmaker and an artist, that's what she's got. Those are her, those are her uh, talents, whether they're hers or not. That's her world that she can exploit and use to be able to get done the piece of art that she wants to get done as an artist. So are you I mean, saying because of her upbringing... That she makes Marie Antoinette such a sympathetic character. Oh, absolutely. And because that's she what identifies makes, like, with dude, her. Like, in Lost in Translation, the there's power. a big yeah. thing with Lost in Translation. She was married to Spike Jones at the time. Right. And their marriage right. was falling the fuck apart behind right. the scenes. And Lost in Translation, whether or not it's directly connected to that, a huge plot of that movie deals with her Marriage having a crumbling. famous husband mm-hmm. who and takes her like to like this place well, he's a and is just too, yeah he's a photographer right? yeah. yeah and he's yeah. like he's he's going around he's talking to people and he's constantly busy and she's just kind of left there to her own device kind of like a second mm-hmm. and that's and she's supposed to be available to him whenever he comes exactly back. Right. right and it's and like it's this bullshit. it's this uh, and also too there's like really cool. Uh, uh, similarities between that relationship in Lost in Translation and the relationship between Louis and Marie Antoinette in this one, where it's like this kind of uh, emotional connection. Absolutely. You yeah, do, do not doubt for a second that, that yeah. Louis cares yeah. for Marie Antoinette. He really and does. Yeah. And vice versa. No, and said, like, this will be an embarrassment to me if your brother-in-law is pregnant before I am. And right. he's like, don't worry, when I come back, we'll, we'll take care of so it. They yeah, they're a team. They're like, they we'll know. get this. Yeah. We're going to figure this We're out. We're trying to do this together. Mm-hmm. I love at the end when she says, my place is by my husband. By my husband. Mm-hmm. I'm not leaving. And she never did. And she never did. Yeah. And I yeah. think it's really cool, too, that they do, that they never really, they never really uh, go into the, you know, the beheading. Right. Or the death. The, 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 the scene of the bedroom in ruins after a party which was such a massive a pivotal point of the movie in the beginning when she's brought into that whole estate and they're brought into it and it's like this is going to be a massive part of who you are you have to become not only the wife but the lover and the and the mother and also in like this hidden room you have to be a part in this hidden room just hidden in the wallpaper that door is one of my favorite parts of the film Mm -hmm. did they show the the storming of Versailles Taking no, you only so really you hear it. The you, they're at the table together. You, you only see you. You pretty much they only see like one room. You see her room broken, like broken yeah. and destroyed, and it's pretty much it, it calls back to earlier on in the movie after like the big eighteen uh, birthday party. It's just, like it's just it's after a party. There's a mess. Right. Oh, that's such a yeah. good. And that's like I love the last line. And it's just like 
Are you saying goodbye to your 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 lime path? And no, because he was saying, "Are you looking at? Are you looking at? Are you looking at? Oh, I'm saying goodbye. Yes, all right, I messed that up. Yeah, that's that's what it is. She knew she would never be back. Yeah, he says like, "Are you you staring at your lime at your lime path?" And she says, "I'm saying goodbye." And there's just one other thing. I can't believe this film was booed at Cannes. I mean, like, I can believe really? it. Really? Yeah, people didn't get it. Really. No, 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 no. The French hate her still to Oh, this yeah. Day. Yeah, absolutely. They hate her. Yeah. And she wasn't responsible. She right. was a figurehead, yeah. though. Well, so and that, fitting. this movie getting booed at Cannes is... The 16th. They hate her. Yeah. That's what makes uh, Sofia Coppola winning Best Director at Cannes this year that much deal. sweeter. Like a that's like deal. awesome. It's like they're not holding it against her. They just did not. They didn't agree they with, her with her take yeah. on this on this character. That's I think what I love about the girl. French. Yeah, I mm-hmm. think a big part of it too is that one of the big scandals with Marie Antoinette was the necklace scandal, where a necklace was made for her or made for another woman, and then was given to her, and I think she sold it. Yeah, I, said, so I read something about that. Uh, yeah. Fucking necklaces. I'm tired of necklaces. And, <laughs> and this was a big scandal. The French hated her for giving away this necklace that was made for another woman. Like, can you blame her for giving it away or selling it? And so they don't touch on that in the film, and I think with just cause, because that's not what the film is about. The film is about Marie Antoinette as a human being and as a yeah. woman and not her mishaps or what the French have put upon her through history. Mm-hmm. What yeah. I really love about the French and that Sophia won at Cannes this year, right? For Beguiled. Is mm-hmm. that the French, culturally, they are very much like, and this is something that's said to me by all of my French teachers, non, je suis pas d'accord. I don't agree with you, but it doesn't mean I hate you. Mm-hmm. We're going to talk about it, and we're going to talk about it loudly, and I will disagree with you vehemently. Vehemently? Vehemently. And, listen, Bloody Marys are real. I'll still respect (laughs) you. And then when you do something that I feel proud of, I'll let you know. Yeah. They're very, like, this is how I feel. They're a pragmatic bunch. Mm -hmm. They have discourse. I love that. Yeah. That is awesome. Well, while we're on the point of discourse, before we close up on Marie Antoinette real quick, uh, yes. Bernadette, I wanted to talk to you about The Beguiled real okay. quick. And we'll try and be very spoiler free because uh, two it. parties no, here have not seen it. it. And, and also the listeners may not I have seen it. But I would to love say to. I've heard something about it. Mm-hmm. And Through the podcast? How, no. no. <laughs> uh, maybe I'll tell you afterwards. Okay. Okay. I mean, I could say it now, though. If you feel it applies, well, see if it doesn't come up. Yeah. Uh, So the beguiled, uh, you were kind of lukewarm on it when you when you saw it, uh, and I wanted to be super hot on it. Absolutely, yeah. And like, I walked in kind of thinking, like, I like Sofia Coppola, I like all of her movies. Let's see what's going on here. And when I walked out of the beguiled, my first initial reaction was, I was like, "This is my favorite Sofia Coppola movie." Yeah, that's what you said. This is. I texted you like immediately after I listened to the podcast, and this was. I think that there is a simplicity and just a classicalness to this movie that is borderline masterpiece. It is a great movie. It works on every fucking level that it is that it is going towards and the the performances in it, each and every single one of them is special in their own way. They're not just there to help another character's arc or to help another character get to where they need to go. Each one is a fully developed, fully realized uh, personification of a level of the theme that they're trying to talk about. And I had so much fun watching that movie. And I really cannot wait to see it again. 
but at the same time, after listening to your podcast, I totally understand some of the problems that you had with it mm-hmm. and, that, and that Robbie had with it as well. Mm-hmm. No, I, I agree with you. I think the acting is superb. I think every character did exactly what they could with what was written on the page. My favorite part of The Beguiled, and I hate to say this, but he's just a magnet, was Colin Farrell. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want Colin Farrell to be my favorite part of The right. Beguiled. He's just, I, I wanted the women to be that's my favorite what he's, part. He's structured so, to be that. You know? But he's like, so good. But the actresses in these films are also so good. Yeah. But what I really liked were the younger girls. Right, yeah. In and the that's household. yeah, and I think that they were the we, ones who were really discovering themselves within this. We film. were discussing, you know, over like text and stuff, like talking about it briefly after I had watched it. About what a man can be to about each what of a these man can be to people. Each of uh like to uh, what a man what a is. man's place can represent to a woman in different phases of her life. Yeah, brother, and also father. as like uh, what they can be as like what 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 role they can fill as a brother, a husband, a lover, a worker, a helper, a friend. Right. You know, like it's it, right. it, and I think that the what is so captivating about Colin Farrell's performance is because it is insanely underplayed, mm-hmm. but it is very well acted. And he yes. is able to manipulate every situation without us ever being told directly outright that he is manipulating them. We can tell because when he is talking to one of them, he is talking completely differently than the others. Absolutely. Yeah. And he loves getting them alone and just, and like finding their their weaknesses and their strengths, not just their weaknesses. He's in a and hive. And using them against yeah. them. Yeah, he is a... He's in a hive and he's stirring up the nest. Yeah, exactly. He is a manipulator, and a manipulator... Um, uh, expert he is just right. he he is able to get all of like the younger girls on his side uh through brotherly love and friendship and he is able to get uh universally all of them liking him because he's working on the garden and all of that stuff and right. don't want to get into spoilers too much sure. about the, the other romances and stuff like that but sure. i really do think that that sophia coppola tackling that idea of womanhood on all these different levels and using this kind of hypersexualized male figure to be the you know it's the that catalyst it, that is this. the catalyst of what is introduced into the, it's the same thing as like like a oversexualized woman being introduced to a group of men and she's using her sexuality and all of that to like uh, manipulate all of them and it's just being role reversed here mm-hmm. I understand where you're coming from absolutely um, what I like or the differences between the two films that we're talking about right now, The Beguiled and Marie Antoinette. Mm. With The Beguiled, um, I really wanted to see the characters more realized. And when I say the characters, I mean the headmistress, Nicole Kidman's character, the Kirsten Dunst character, Edwina, and the Elle Fanning character. I wanted to see them a little more realized because I feel like we got the gist of their characters in the trailer for the film. Yeah. And I needed to see a little bit more. Yeah. I think she is... Sofia Coppola was an awesome director. She gets the costuming down. She gets... She hires people to get cinematography to a fault. And the writing is always exquisite. The directing is always superb. Oh, God, God that movie looks Just amazing. All of her films are they so... beautiful. Yes. They're so gorgeous. Virgin Suicides. Yeah. Mm-hmm. From start to finish. Just... Incredible. Very beautiful. underrated too, the Virgin, Virgin Suicides. Suicides? Yeah. Like she really pulled that out of nowhere. That yes, she did. Amazing. Have you guys ever seen her um her first uh short film? 
No, I don't um, think so. Lick the Star. Oh, lick the Star. Lick the star. <laughs> it's like 14 minutes, dude. Go home and watch it. It's I'm an easy to. watch. It's great. It's really cool. To. It takes place oh, in like 7th so grade, middle school. It's awesome. Yeah. You guys really didn't touch on the thing that I heard about the film. Okay. Which is, The Beguiled is a remake? Correct. Yeah. Correct. Right? 1971. And Told from the, the original, women's perspective. And the original film, there was a slave character, mm. which was written out of the remake. Yes. And so she's been getting a lot of heat. Right. For writing that character out rather than dealing with the implications of slavery mm-hmm. and I believe race. Yeah. I, I think that's the worst part of the movie yeah, is because is a young girl a young girl says at the very beginning of the film, the slaves left and that's right. it. Right. And I think and she spoke to it too and actually like she can she, she can explain herself way better than I can, so I would recommend just like reading like what she said afterwards okay. when that came out. Okay. But more or less, she gets to the point where it, it's first off the thing that popped just, into my head when somebody brought like that up. It reads like a racer. But Absolutely. here's the thing. Here's the thing, though. In this, you she's dealing that. with enough things in this movie that she feels personal about that she can talk about as a woman. As a woman, okay. and, and maybe she doesn't feel she can't speak to race. This is the exact thing where it's like, what would you rather have? Sophia Coppola saying, "I don't feel comfortable." giving you my opinion on race relations in the Civil War. That's when you hire someone else to inform your script. Well, no, she wanted that was her idea for her script that she wanted to do. You but know, you and they can't do and not talk about race. Well, no, in the and Civil it's War. it's not that she's not talking about race in the Civil War. That line that she uses to say that the slaves are gone heavily uh, influences why that house is in such disarray. The garden is all fucked up because these women don't know how to don't know how to garden it like that. There's scenes that we get to see them trying to garden and it's not working out. And he goes, "Hey, I could help you garden," and that's a way that he's able to progress his stature in there to try and manipulate his way out of being stuck in the no, room. I can see what I you're saying. I see what you're saying as it serves the script, but I think it's problematic. And it's problematic, but I think that I it's think that's not. Why I didn't enjoy it as much as I could have. Civil War without any how can any implication you possibly as to it. have a film set during the Civil War without any of the elements that preceded the war? I don't know. Like, like that's the how? whole thing, though. I don't understand. It's not without. Because they say they're just like they're not at this Are house. But that's a dismissal. Black in the film? No. no. Because it all takes place at a house where the slaves have already left. Yes, but the slaves had not left in the original film. And she did no. it in order to not have to deal with the race issue. Mm, that's how it reads. Kind of, yeah. I mean, reads. that's what it is. Because yeah. she doesn't want to she doesn't want to speak to race because she doesn't understand it, right? That's mm. the implication. Okay. But you can't make this film about the Civil War without race because the whole moral reason for the war was uh, abolitionism, liberating the slaves. And the whole reason the South seceded, even though they claim that's not the reason, they claim it was states' rights, it was in order to subjugate human beings and treat them as less right. than. You can't make this film without and not, talking not, and say, about I it. will say that you should definitely see The Beguiled and, and then we can talk about it yeah. because I think that when you see The Beguiled and you see what she's trying to do with great. that time, it, it becomes it's way more apparent, way better than I can word I it and explain it. This movie, it looks great. The answer yeah. that was just like so stunning, so embellished, so Edwardian. I mean, it's like, as I was watching this, I just kept saying to the person I was with, Tree, I was like, 
I can't believe I have never seen this before because this is like that's what you said right up my mm-hmm. alley. Stamper. Like right can't believe you haven't seen this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I can't so believe it. You. I cannot yeah. believe it. And I was watching it, and like honestly, the fact that it was marginalized by this drama that this historical drama that actually happened, mm-hmm. I could have been that could have been totally left out for me because all the scenes without audio. I mean, without the yeah. the um. The dialogue, mm-hmm. I would have been totally fine. The music and the scenery is where it's at for me. So, Liz, what oh. I think you are trying to get at, maybe, is that Sofia Coppola does, what she does is she takes the story she wants to tell and kind of takes away the other bits that will hinder the story yeah, that I she wants. Need that other stuff. With Marie, Marie Antoinette, she takes the French out of it. It's not a subtitled film. Right. It's all spoken in English. Right. She gives and this pop them. teenager story yeah. with responsibility. And it works in Marie Antoinette, but her dialogue, it doesn't work with The Beguiled. The Beguiled because that becomes problematic. Away the black people. Yeah. And well, just like she takes away the peasants in Marie Antoinette. And she does. They're there, wiping the eggs off for her children. Mm-hmm. Wiping the shit off of the eggs. They're it's there. True, it's true. They mm-hmm. don't speak, they are there. Mm-hmm. That's it's all not I have to say. Yeah. No, you actually. Yeah. This is really cool. You need to see the Beguiled so we can talk about. Oh, this. I know. That would well, be let's great. Let's see it together because yeah. I want to see it too. And it's just. See, no, no, it's funny it's because okay. I felt like it wasn't a fully realized film for well, character reasons, not even just setting historical, reasons. Right? Exactly. But she's not a historical so, filmmaker, and so that's no. a different thing. But what I want to say about Stan said Antoinette. about Marie Antoinette. Um, and like the story of it, like not needing the dialogue, is that you don't the need any historical of that. facts. Mm-hmm. The historical facts that didn't of the do film, anything for it. That did nothing. No, right. But it's so it's it's such a classic. Like this is like a fairy tale. Yeah, it's like a fairy mm-hmm. tale. The actual history it, is reality. like a fairy tale, and that's why you don't need the dialogue because we all we already know the story. We are familiar with the players and the archetypes and the yes. roles they're supposed to play. Right. I mean, the actual plot line mm-hmm. and the character development and whatnot was so unbelievably dry yeah. so unbelievably oh, dry that i was like, like wanting something else to happen yeah. you know when she wakes up and she's holding mops and Aww. the sun's coming in or when she's you know later on when it's her 18th birthday and she's with her friends and she's on the boat and she's like running her fingers along the water when she's at the mask and she has this beautiful embroidered outfit on first... and everything around her is just like embellished and amazing like that's what this movie was about for me mm-hmm. like yeah. When she first crossed, she's got a story that she's trying to tell. The historical linear context of it all is something that we all know, Mm -hmm. and that is what drove this movie on. But it was the visual constructs, and actually, for me, the soundtrack that went with that like they could have not said a fucking word. I could have just seen them dancing and kissing and being in bed together. And just totally silent apart from the music and the backdrop. And that would have been fine. Because like for me, that's what it was. It was yes. about this embellished like an opera. backdrop. Because well, I mean, there were two operas but that you don't throughout the movie. And that's what, exactly. like. that's what it was like. That's what it was like going to see an opera. So you said so. it was kind of like a fairy tale. Yeah. And I love that because the main fairy tale scene is when she goes to that ball right. in, in Paris. And she's not supposed to be there. It's a masked and then ball. And she stands up and claps. Or no, that's the opera, my bad. Yeah, different scene. Sorry. But I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Um, 
she goes to this masked ball, and that is the most fairy tale element of the entire film. And during that scene, a song is being played, and they say it's it's about basically going home with someone who you do not love at all, who you're not in love with at all. And so it kind of takes this like fairy tale aspect and like flips it on its head, and it's mm-hmm. like, let me give you a modern day yeah. fairy tale. About Versailles and yeah, the fall and of Versailles. Like, that's that punk rock like a- a element of that, Absolutely. like that kind of pop punk rock like so thing. Smart. Like that's like why it's so like hyper visual and like so hyper sensitive well with the music and stuff like yes. that. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, um, well, we got it. We got to keep going. The very last thing I want to say okay. about yes. Marie Antoinette. Right? Please do. The opening scene where she crosses the river and is stripped and bathed in it. She bathes in the river, or oh, no, it's in the woods. It's just the woods. She crosses the river and she's in France, right? Mm-hmm. That sounds really cool. I want to cross the river into France. <laughs> yeah. Like, that sounds awesome. No, like that's like I said at the behind. beginning. Like that was really like, that's the coolest scene in there because that whole idea just like symbolically and the fact that that actually happened, like that's a thing right. that actually happened. And yeah. the whole thing with the dog was like, that is a known thing that actually happened. Like the dog was eventually returned to her. Okay. Uh, shortly yeah. after she arrived, but for they the for, they took it from her, but then it was like returned to her. Like yeah, and it was like they they have to keep Symbolic. it like that for what Sofia Coppola is trying to talk about here, and it's no. very important for that. All I'm saying is, whenever I go to France, I'm going to strip down. <laughs> Just like I'm there Marie too. Antoinette. Yeah, I agree with that. France. That's exactly like what I want to do. Once I enter France, losing the clothes, getting French clothes. <laughs> smoking a cigarette, having a croissant, and just... Croissant. Let me eat cake. Let them Run through the woods said, naked. I, didn't, I don't <laughs> like cake, actually. Well, inf- so. you'll like French cake. Well, thank you, Berg, for cutting yeah. us short because oh, we no, no, yeah, yeah, we talk about it. No, no, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll, uh, yeah. we'll, we'll, we'll like, jump on to the next one. So, um, yeah. We're gonna, yeah. We're going we're gonna to jump on over to the Babadook. The Babadook. So, Stamper. The, the Babadook. Babadook. Go. Well, the Babadook is something that I chose. I had only seen it one time prior to this most recent time, so twice altogether. It is a movie that is directed by Jennifer Kent. This is her debut in terms of directing. She was an Australian uh, actress prior to this. And um, when we were prompted to look at movies that were directed by women, I was immediately drawn to The Babadook just because of its horror aspects, but also how real it was and how it touched on notes of psychology um, and that you'd have to recognize her plight in terms of being a single mother raising this problem child alone while dealing with depression and this manifestation of depression and how that was um, depicted throughout the movie um, as this horrifying specter that was um, kind of surveying her everyday life was very... um, It was something that I found relatable. You know, um, most people do deal with depression in varying ways, and this is probably the most extreme in terms of what might happen if it's undiagnosed and what could come of it. Yeah, um, if like you can't accept it. If you can't accept it. You don't even it, realize like it's there and it's something. It, yeah. And Do also that. the mother kind of like pulled herself out of um, the norm and hid herself away with her and just her son in this realm of uh, chaos and sadness. And the um, so uh, 
going back a little bit, just in terms of the synopsis, the mother is um, raising this child alone. The father passed away in a car wreck when they were going to the hospital to give birth to the son. So there's this pent-up resentment that the mother has towards the son, even though she loves Samuel, this problem child. She loves him without boundaries, Um, But there's also this resentment that she has there because she understands that she will forever be raising this child alone. Mm -hmm. The husband is gone. And so at the start of this movie, well, what I should say is when I saw this movie the first time, I saw it almost as uh, from the perspective of um, this child is a nuisance. This child is someone that if he was not a part of the scenario, all would be well. Right. But then in rewatching it, the child is actually the saving grace. The child is the one who recognizes that this mother has been depressed since he was born and did not want him there. There is even a moment where the, the son, Samuel, says, I know you do not love me, mother, but I have always loved you. Mm-hmm. So he, as a six-year-old boy, knows that his mother does not love him. But he has this undying love for his mother and this need to protect her Hmm. because he's always recognized the Babadook. Mm -hmm. He's always known that the mother has been battling with this darkness because of what transpired, because of what has come to pass and the reality that they're living in now that it's just her and it's him and it's the Babadook. Mm -hmm. And you can never get rid of the Babadook. You can never get rid of the depression that comes about with losing someone that you love and realizing that you are there alone forever after. The movie's also scary. The movie is actually (laughs) terrifying. The way that they go in um, with the uh, audio Mm -hmm. in particular, um, just this kind of like humming that just gets louder and louder and louder and suddenly something happens. That is what you look for in a horror movie, just Mm -hmm. that jarring moment where you're like, oh my God, what's happening? I mean, it's It's like the image, yeah, the the image of the Babadook is just like, it's It's insanely creepy, even though now it's become connected with queer culture. We'll get into that. We'll get into that. Very much so. Oh, did you think we weren't going to talk about that? (laughs) So Stamper, you and I had the same introduction when the Babadook came out. I heard so many good things about it and I really tried to remain in the dark. So I didn't know what it was about going into it. I tried to not read anything about it. I just wanted to see it and have a raw emotional response to it. And so I went in not really knowing the the themes Mm -hmm. or the subtext of the story. And yeah, the first time you watch it, you watch this child and you're like, gosh, Samuel, like, just get it together. Like, you are an awful child. Just stop being so destructive. Your mom is trying to help you have a good life and you are ruining it. And you were just overwhelming. Mm-hmm. And oh then the God, second time yeah. I watched but it, luckily, yeah. was, I think, seriously, two weeks before the whole gay icon thing came about. <laughs> so I was able to view the film the second time. And I was raised by a single mother who was battling depression. And I understand that. And so the second time I watched it, knowing that going into it, yeah. it was so heartbreaking to me on another level. On another level. And that was the horror of it. Because mm-hmm. I'm a very, like, audio scare type of person. I can handle gore. Show me murders. Show me whatever. I can handle it. But the audio 
and the jump scare of it is oh, what yeah. gets to me. Yeah. And so the pathos has it all going on and the psychological. Is far more psychological. Absolutely. So if it's a horror and all you're showing me is gore, like that's not going to phase me. No. But psychological horror and audio horror is what gets to me. Yes. So the second time I watched it, I'm so glad I saw it again before the whole gay icon thing <laughs> came up. Because now every time I watch it, I'm just going to be like, oh. This is delightful. But it's so well done. This is definitely about a son recognizing the darkness within his mother Mm -hmm. and knowing it all throughout his entire life and trying to protect her from it encroaching to the point where she is no longer who he loves. Right. And being the savior in the end. Right. And it's because I've only seen this twice. And so, as I was saying before, the first time was very much like, shut the fuck up, in terms of, like, the, the kid child. just screaming and, like, kicking his cousin out of the treehouse. But then in the se- the second viewing, you can really understand that the boy is almost You see knowing. where it's coming from. He's yeah. omniscient. A second viewing of the Babadook is, it's almost an entirely different movie. Totally Absolutely different. Because you're, you're totally seeing where it's, kind of like, once you see the ending and you realize, like, oh, that's what's been going on all along. You know, it takes away the supernatural and it yeah. brings in the very natural, the very yeah, real, the very and natural, it turns it into almost yeah. more of a, like a, uh, like a thriller instead of a horror movie. It's right. more of like a oh my good, like a dramatic thriller where you're, like you're just like oh my goodness, this woman is like falling apart at the seams, 100%. and everyone around her, whether they're aware of it or not, is attempting to help her and giving her. You know, they're all giving her olive branches. They're all saying, like, we want to help you, but, she's but you need to be able off. to want to help yourself. And even the son and the son's kind of acting out and stuff like that. When at first, like, it's 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 perceived as like, what is this kid's problem? Like, yeah, right. you are making things so much harder. Can't you just, like, relax and listen? Just, like, listen. And it, you realize like, it becomes, it comes from, like, severe severely bad parenting yeah. that this kid has not been given you know the love and affection he needs to be able to understand what moral rules are i don't know because yeah. i feel like he recognizes things that she does not when she right pretends... in, in the second viewing absolutely yeah absolutely because she's pretending with her sister that all is well and good you know in that scene where they are in the backyard and her sister's daughter is playing in the treehouse and mm-hmm. then he's up in the treehouse and the sister's daughter is being like kind of a really awful a real brat to him right and there's this tension happening between two sisters and then the tension happening between the two cousins where he's recognizing that she's being a brat and then kicks her out of the treehouse and then the mother's sister is like i can't believe you raised this kid he's a piece of shit blah 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 keep him away from my daughter but no one's understanding the in-between that there is this dialogue in between there's this tension that that immediately relates to the action so the daughter was being a shithead to the kid the kid kicked her out of the treehouse the sister is pretending that all is well and good and then the other sister is reacting to that like nothing is good your husband is dead you are depressed. You are treating your child this way and your child is treating my daughter this way. And so it's this constant vicious cycle and the only person that seems to be aware of any of it is Samuel. Yeah. Is the child. I, he creates yeah, I all these constructs where he's like trying to battle the depression that he sees within his mother that nobody else wants to recognize but they're trapped within the house together. Mm-hmm. Right. I think Go ahead, there's Liz. a lot to be said about uh, the fact that the child is the one who knows everything because... 
Adults always want to discount children's experience, want to pretend that they don't understand. But children understand mm. a lot. That's a classic movie trope. It's you know, like the classic, kids say, like, this is like, going on, yeah, and none and of the no parents believe to, them. Yeah. No one wants it's to acknowledge so it. It's so real, and it's even more real in this film, because not only is there this supernatural element, there's this deep psychological, emotional element. And, you know, I have a friend whose mother was suffering from postpartum depression, and was uh, orphaned at a young age, lost their mother, and so the grandmother died at a young age. And their mother was suffering from postpartum depression and had a plan to kill herself, but first she wanted to kill her children because she didn't want them to grow up the way she did without a mother. And so he understood that was what was going on, but... No one believed that she was that far gone. Right, because she probably acted uh, fairly uh, normal by, like, the standards of culture and everything like that. So, like, you never... And that's the whole thing. It's like she just kind of seems like she's upset. You You know, it's the line, like, upset is culturally acceptable. Depressed is like, oh, what what are you... Like, people don't want to make that jump so easily. And so you get people that say, like... How are you feeling? Yeah. Well, also, How are you coping this with movie it? Turned into a, a, it uh, showcases psychosis because when she moves the fridge away and she's peeling away the wallpaper and there are roaches just coming in, like, and then all of a sudden she blinks back and that's gone. Right. She's coming to understand how far gone she is mm-hmm. within that moment. Mm-hmm. That that was very real to her, and then more reality came in where these people are. Like social, it's uh, social works. Yeah, mm-hmm. social services are coming in to maybe take her son away, and she's in this position where she cannot only she can't handle herself, she can't handle a child, right. and she's losing grip on everything. Yeah, and that's using classic horror tropes of like seeing things in a house, and there. it's like, oh my god, it's haunted. There's a demon in this house, and like that's what they're playing you towards. And then the big twist in the end is like, no, this has been something that this has been an internal struggle in her own mind that only her son has been made, has been aware of in some way. Yeah. For his entire life. He understands that's there. He knows about the Babadook, Mm -hmm. you know? And I I love the, the twist, like where like there's the little tiny nugget of information there where it's like, you find out that before the tragedy, she used to be a, uh, um, a children's book writer. Right. And the Babadook shows up as a children's, children's book, book. as a pop-up. It and it's like she built this thing as like it's like it's taking over. The depression is yeah. becoming a thing that's manifesting itself. itself into something that can be far more dangerous because it's going from internal to external. Something that... So much. Oh, Sorry. No, you go ahead. Okay. Something that we've spoken of, not in this podcast in particular, but something in just conversation is that a lot is put on women as weakness. And so as a woman, we can't show any further weakness than what is already put on us, even if we might not be weak in the certain circumstances that people are projecting onto us. But as a woman, we're the the weaker sex. And this woman, the mother, of course she's trying to keep it together. And I think one of my favorite scenes is in that birthday party scene, where her son kicks the cousin out of the treehouse, is they are having a discussion inside. And obviously the sister doesn't want her other depressed sister around because she makes the other women uncomfortable. Right. And the women yeah. are it's having a discussion about, about mm-hmm. their problems. Right. And she was like, these are 
fucking insane problems. Like, these are ridiculous things to be talking about and having issue with. And so they bring up her Can't you just pretend everything's okay? It's okay. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's the whole the thing. Whole that, time. And that's like she doesn't really have a support group around her no. to be able to even isolate, like, what's going on with her. It's like her that's son, of all things, is, is the, the person only... that's like, I'm trying to help you, but I'm trying to do it in a way that won't scare you or get you ang- or make you angry. Yeah. I'm just like, I, I love you, you and I want you to love me and I'll protect you if you protect me. Like that's a line. That's and it, it. it's, that's very, it's very telling of what society, the, the pressures that society put on us to act normal quote air quotes on a podcast like uncomfortable exactly yeah and that poor little boy learning magic trying to make things disappear Mm -hmm. he's just trying to learn how to make this problem go away in a way that he knows how to make things go away nothing in my hands nothing in my hands hands. oh so cute and heartbreaking to watch him try to like get a Get this problem to disappear. It is a really good performance by that kid too. Oh, he's like so you never good. had a it's second amazing. think that like this isn't like a real character. Like this is a real person this that's like person. doing all of these things. And he's it's, lived with that. Yeah, and it's life, like yeah. I think that that's again like that's all that's Jennifer Kent. Like you like when it comes to child actors really putting forth a really awesome performance that always goes back to to the director yes, like with does. the casting and the directing and being able to, you know, you, you need to, especially in a horror movie, when you're having a child that's so young, having to go through all of these very traumatic things and being able to get that child mm-hmm. as an actor through the scenes without traumatizing them and being able to communicate, like, this is what you need to be doing and what you're doing is going to look horrifying on screen in context. It's removing that context from the actual shooting the scene that is very hard to do, but also, like, making sure that the child is going to act the scene and and do what is going to be necessary to, like, progress the story forward. And this kid is... Horrifying. Horrifying. In Amazingly good. In the yeah. beginning, you hate him. In the yes. beginning, you just despise him because you think this mother's life would be so much easier if you were just a normal kid. But then you realize this hey, kid is not see? normal because the mother is not normal. Right. right. This child is compensating for what he sees the mother lacking. Mm-hmm. And in the second viewing, that's what I really picked up. Because like I said before, the first time I saw it, I despised the child. I despised how yes. upsetting he was and how he just would not... Be Shut good. The fuck he up. He wouldn't just be yeah, good. Yeah, just be good. Just be a good kid. You know, like go well, to sleep. Well, it's the same thing as like you know, all like her sister telling her like, can't you just be happy? You know, and it's like no, things have happened in my life on something that... that's like major. Yeah, right. like her husband died, and she's been dealing with it, and the or not dealing with it. The child's yeah, birthday exactly. is just a reminder of yeah. They what won't she's even lost. celebrate the birthday on the Until actual day. Yeah, it's so sad. Yeah. That's so Until sad the too. Wait, what's and the child they won't celebrate. She won't celebrate um, Samuel's birthday, birthday on the day because that's also the anniversary of the day her, her husband dead. died. What I was going to bring up before is that it, it reminds me so much of uh, the turning of the screw. Yes, with that woman who came in to watch the children. And then there was a supernatural, ominous figure that was always in the peripheral. And the only time it showed up was when the woman almost lost her position. Right. So when it came to the children's well-being and almost this imperative um, need to protect them, mm-hmm. then the supernatural figure came into play. Right. So that 
also brought up the question of is the supernatural figure real or is it something that the manifestation um, that was there because it was necessary and it made the position necessary right so you you question um the babadook from the mother's perspective is this real or is it the mother's um imagining of it and it's the, the answer is it's everything. It's both. It's yeah. everything. So it is very real to the mother and to the son because they're living in this household with this entity that is beyond them. But to the outside world, it's nothing other than like an upset day or an upset week. And you can get over it, you know, but it is very, very real. And it's something yeah. that you can never over. You can never really overcome. You just battle with it on a day to day basis, which we see which at the depression. end yeah. mm-hmm. after I mean, it really, intense. the movie really gets Absolutely. what depression is and what it can so, do to you and treats it with respect, yes. mm-hmm. but also with the horror that it can be both personally and to those around you. Mm-hmm. Something that didn't strike me until the second time I watched it was that she is, the mother is grinding her teeth. And mm-hmm. that's something that is very much accentuated in the film. Like, they really make sure that they're paying attention to her mouth. And at one point, she pulls out a tooth. Yes. She physically goes in her mouth and takes out a tooth. her all throughout. And to me, the second time watching it, I had better insight into what was going on. And I thought to myself, okay, so the only representation of everything's fine is coming out through her mouth. Her sleep schedule, her appearance, the way she is handling her child, nothing is fine except for what she is saying. Like, everything's fine. Everything's fine. And she's so, like, quiet. She's such a soft-spoken person. She's like, all right, Samuel, let's go to bed. But he sees. And this is eroding. Her mouth is eroding. The last way to say she is fine is gone. And I think that was so cool to show that degradation of her mouth, the only way that she could project to the world that Mm -hmm. she was okay you're done. Like, you've spent it. It is gone. It is eroding and dying, even while you were trying to say, everything is still okay. Everything is not okay. Even, you know, what I really enjoyed about the artistic approach to it was the household was very kind of uh, dark and drab. Mm -hmm. So there are a lot of grays and there are these saturated dark colors. But if you watch the movie, the mother always has a spotlight overhead. So regardless of time or day, she is always under spotlight, and I'll never forget this one scene where she's in the bed with Samuel, and she's talking to Samuel, and he's kind of in the shadows, but there's a spotlight over her, because it really is about, she's like, how mother. she is, I wouldn't necessarily say evolving, like, degrading. Yeah. She is degrading throughout the movie, mm-hmm. and it's about, I watched it with my roommates, Corey and Amanda, <laughs> and they made this joke about how... um her hair just gets more Crazier and more magnificent and throughout the movie. Like, <laughs> even though she's depressed and she hasn't showered in days, her hair is still like stunning and beautiful. But in them saying that, that's how I noticed that she had this overhead spotlight on her mm-hmm. throughout the whole movie because it's about her narrative, mm-hmm. regardless of the different perceptions and the different right. um, um, takes on how she's interacting with the son and the sister and just like everyday life it is truly about ha- how she is processing all of these interactions right. with people it really is impressive how they pulled it off pull it off without showing their hand throughout the whole movie the first time you're watching it 
you know, I, I don't, I think maybe because they can kind of hide behind like, yeah, she's grieving and this is something that's happening to a character that's grieving. And it's never really shown until the very end that it's happening to her because she's grieving. It is the grieving. Yep. And the fact that they never tip their hat or show their hand throughout the first, the, your first viewing of that is really cool. How they use just typical horror jump scares and shots and tones and music and everything like that. Their execution of it is just like top notch. Yeah. And it it's just, poetic. that's what makes it a really good horror movie. The best horror movies are about something more than, than just what's scary. It's what yeah. that thing represents. represents. Yes. Yeah. It's a forever after because yes. then at the end, when the sun says you can never get rid of the Babadook and then he's yeah. suspended in air up the stairwell and she is finally at her, you Except, know, she's, yeah. she's fully back. Her wits are back and she's chasing after her son because prior to that she was trying to kill her son and right. she had just like strangled the dog to death. Mm-hmm. And she's at this point ready and willing to find the warrior part of her is back and she's charging up the stairs and her son is being thrown against the walls and then there's nothing and then there's just her holding her son in the darkness and she's screaming into the darkness saying this is my house get out you get out and the babadook is just this massive figure with this top hat and it's just like a shadowy creature you know coming at her and she's screaming at it and she's saying you get out and holding her son because she had never shown her son any sort of kindness up until then Mm -hmm. until she realized that it's me and him against everything else and he's fighting for me and i need to fight for him no matter how big the force is that you're fighting it's you need to stand up to it and even still she fought against it and it it like shrieked and ran down the stairs and into the basement and that's what i thought was beautiful about it in uh its entirety is that you can never get rid of this feeling. They realize that, yeah. Mm-hmm. The depression, you have to battle it every day. Um, it's not your typical hero, villain story where the villain is... Uh, vanquished. Evil. Vanquished and gone forever. This is something that truly creates Lives a warrior and who you are as a person and a mother. That it's something that you wake up and you battle and face every day and then get on with it. Mm-hmm. It's in the basement. You already battled it. You get along with you your day. You feed it every day. You get, yeah. Yep. Almost like it. keeping yeah. it in the closet. Almost. <laughs> well, I've never Uh-oh. been. Hold on. Just before we get into that. Before we get into I've the never been more scared of the passage of time than with this film. Because even those scenes, there are multiple scenes where she puts Samuel to bed or Samuel will sleep with her in her own bed. And. There's a rapid succession of time, and all of a sudden it's morning. They go from night to morning really quickly. And you see them moving around and the sheets rustling. But the sound is so harrowing because it's showing you each day that she is avoiding this topic of depression and not facing it. It's getting worse. Worse. And the strengthening and the feeding of that depression and fear just grows every single time you see one of those scenes, which is fast forward through time terrifying oh and i really did appreciate that about the movie too yeah because it's like this agitation Mm -hmm. as a viewer that you feel you're being brought through this timescape and there's no resolve right so you see her sleeping and then the time passing but then she just wakes up and the issue is still there it's grown so we as the viewer we're like oh my god when will this come to a close right when are you going to actually tackle it yeah so well done 
from an emotional point of view, it's an incredibly difficult film, especially if, like, you have similar struggles, if you deal with depression every day, and then you watch it, and you see it, because it's so well done, it really gets it. They hone in yeah. on that specific feeling. It's so, very. It's what's making it hard for me like, to talk yeah, right like now. Yeah, <laughs> it, it's almost like yeah. disturbing how that like isolation. it really does. It's a very exact representation of the different ways that this can affect you or the people around you or people that you know that suffer from this. Like it's, it really does get it. Yeah. Like you're yeah. right. Yeah. Because you Even recognize that as someone who has dealt with depression. Yeah. frequently you sleep just like hoping to just get away from it exactly. for a little bit and then you wake up and, and the sleep. problem is still there yeah because she said throughout you wake up most and you're of the movie yeah. like i just need to sleep i just, I just need to sleep, sleep. Mm-hmm. he kept samuel kept like waking jumping up. on her like mom mom i love you i love you and she's like i just need to sleep please mm-hmm. just, just stop sleep. i need to sleep but that doesn't solve the issue no, no. it's just that immediate need to like it's get away from it and he was the only person. It was kind of like very Home Alone in a way, like all his contraptions that he oh, yeah, created definitely. Like like they, to take on they, the they, they tease that earlier on. Like it's like, oh, this guy's got some. This kid's got some stuff that yeah, he can use, and you're like, stuff. oh, he's going to obviously use that to fight the Babadook in the end. And then when you find out that the Babadook is much more, much more powerful than what we were led to believe, and much more than what we were led to believe, then it becomes this completely different thing where it's like mom versus child. And like we don't know who's going to win or who's going like right. who's going to lose what by the end, you know. It's well, scary. Yeah. Even when she would watch television in her delirious states of trying to fall asleep, it would be weird German cartoons. Yeah, it's just cartoons. like really weird stuff with the Babadook showing and the up in there. Yes. And even then, you were seeing a very like semi-awake viewing of like this is something tv is something that i should be able to use to escape and i still can't escape it mm-hmm. yeah yeah it's in my every waking moment even though she was choosing to ignore it it was still there mm-hmm. every time she was trying to get away from it what i found so interesting was that the babadook only grew stronger once she was able to um um placate and essentially drug samuel into a oh, sleep yeah. mm-hmm. and then she was because Throughout the movie, you see Samuel is just, like, distracting her. That's the way I saw it the second yeah. time. Like, first time was him just this annoying child, but the second time I'm realizing he was just dr- distracting her from those negative thoughts. Yeah. But then he was put to sleep, and she was just alone, Jesus. and it got worse and worse yeah. and worse. And it's just right. so mm-hmm. fascinating how she thought that that was helping him, and he thought he was helping her, but in reality, like, they needed each other. Yeah, it was just making things worse. Like, yeah. separation yeah. and, separation. like, cutting ties is not good, like, even though you think it might be good in the immediate, because, again, like, she just wanted to sleep. She just needs to sleep. And it's like, Doc, Doc, please, I just need to sleep. This kid will not leave me alone. <laughs> and it's like, no, that's no. going in the opposite direction and ends up making it worse. Yep. But let's, we're going to talk about queerness yeah. right queerness. now. Because, yeah, we got to wrap this up because we're, ki- yeah. we're, we're, we're cutting long here. But, uh... <laughs> Yeah, so for those that don't know, um, the Babadook has uh, started uh, taking on a, uh, he's kind of become a figurehead he's for, he's an icon. He's an icon. Uh, all came from, being trapped in it all came from um, Tumblr. Some guy like, just like wrote like a, like a, like, a, like a thing real quick, just kind of talking about how the, the 
the Babadook. Uh, look, oh it's, man, I can't believe how he's just like this great queer allegory as like kind of a joke. And then it just started taking this thing where everybody was like, yeah. no, it's about grief. Like you understand that, right? And they're like, yeah, yeah it's about grief and being closeted grief. gay. Yeah, and it's just it just keeps going and going and to the point where like somebody even I it tricked so, me. I thought it was real, but that somebody had like cut in like uh, the Babadook <laughs> in the LGBT category on Netflix. <laughs> And I was like, that's fucking hilarious. Like, that's so good. So in my experience, like, I've only been openly out for a little over a year. I came out shortly after, publicly came out shortly after the Pulse shootings because I couldn't, you know, I, I pass, right? I'm bi. I can pass as straight. I have that privilege. And I can hide from the homophobia the bigotry the hatred that exists in the world towards the queer community i can hide from it but i couldn't hide anymore when my people were attacked my queer latin community even though i'm not from miami i have family that lives there like i could no longer allow people to believe i was something that i wasn't and so that was a big point that was a big deal for me and People, I feel, closet, the issue of being closeted, it's something that's sort of glanced over now because it's much more acceptable to be gay now or queer or trans. Even that, that's not entirely true. Mm. It's presented as being acceptable in these, you know, liberal cities that we live in. But in reality, people still live in this constant fear. And so to have this pop culture icon... <laughs> The Babadook, he's... Which is so ridiculous looking. Like, as a, yeah. He's a representation. There's nothing like seeing a rainbow going over the Babadook's <laughs> image. Like, there's something as about that where you're like, like how did nobody so, think of this before so this? powerful. Mm-hmm. And that's why, you know, representation in media and film and television has always been a passion of mine. And to be represented by this supernatural creature that everyone is into <laughs> they've got like cardboard cutouts <laughs> of the babadook like on parades and stuff like it's amazing it's it really so is perfect. so many cosplayers and have it, i mean he's got a great is. fashion sense first off the, so yeah, yeah. It's, it's weird that i never i i find myself very acute hair. when it comes to picking up on small details and movies i can't believe teeth. i never got this one well it's the clothing that her husband wore right yeah represented on this monstrous being and he was a sharp dressed man he was apparently I mean, he was a magician, he was so he had to be, man. right? Yeah. But the the grief was he of not being able. He kind of picked up on what Samuel was dropping. Right. Yes, yes, definitely. The grief of not being able to express who you are or what you're going through openly. Right. That's what makes it a queer. Very much, yeah. I mean, and yes. it's a joke in the sense of where it's like it. It's funny so to think about that, and like it's so ridiculous to make that connection. But then when you but really start accurate. to think about it, absolutely, at face it's, value, it's you know, it's everybody's but, got their yeah, fight yeah. kind of thing, and it's like this is this is a very clear cut allegory for going through something that you're trying to hide from people, you know. And there's there is that that is definitely in there, and that's kind of the power of metaphorical storytelling is like. Yeah, you might directly be saying something about something. Is that a picture of him? Yes, with, it is. With, with a rainbow suspenders and flamingo sunglasses. Absolutely. I digress. I think we get all get this. Like that, that, that's amazing. Yeah, that's a big thing. Baba Shook. Oh well, I gotta say, guys, thank you so much for uh, getting together with me and talking about all these really good movies. I think we picked some good ones. Yeah. I think Had so. some fun topics some to cover. Varying. 
movies yeah but, yeah no this was across like, the board this was like as perfect as it could be and these were all just like kind of first choices too like yeah, it all right. just kind of yeah. naturally fell this way so that's absolutely great uh i want to thank you guys again uh liz velez stamper thank you bernadette gorman I'm Mike Burge, and uh, thank you so much for listening, and comment, subscribe, do all that fun stuff, and uh, if you've got a movie podcast of your own, send it our way. We love to listen to them as well. All right. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thank you. That you didn't have, and you had something that I didn't have. I was telling these the cool mom. Yeah, everyone but me. Telling these ladies that I've never gotten the sex talk. I never got the drug talk. My mom mom just didn't think about it at all. She didn't want to engage in that type of conversation. It's bizarre. It's a bizarre childhood. Inappropriate. So did we decide? Did we decide on Kirsten or Kirsten? I guess it's Kirsten. It's Kirsten. Kirsten. (laughs) I looked it up. It's a good segue. I think I'm probably gonna mention it and say, "Sorry, my beguiled cast." It's recording right now. Can you? It's not, we're not gonna no like I don't want anyone to hear me say that about my mother oh no yeah. no no the, I started recording after that are you sure yeah you're good none of this will go into the actual cast yeah no Sorry, this right. all gets deleted no, and, and lost to the way winds I know but like that was a great sentence <laughs> it was a good sentence it was only for us only, only for, for you, us guys.